I'm the magic man. Santa Claus of the subconscious. You say it. You think it. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapole. You are indeed. Yes. With a nice cup of sangria. Same here. Yeah. But apart from us, on the East Coast, our East Coast affiliate, you know him from karaoke bars and you know him from doing the chud.com B-movie column. It's Mike Flynn. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to the show. You might remember Mike from such episodes as the Walter Hill show. Yes, the Walter Hill show, which was a very short-lived. They placed <laughs> they placed the Chevy Chase show with the Walter Hill show, and that did yeah. even worse. No, but it well, was tight. It yeah. was at least a very tight show. It was very tight. <laughs> it had a yeah. lot of men being men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but did the Chevy Chase show have Peter Jason as one of his first guests? Oh yeah. Oh. You know, the Walter Hill just I think I think Walter Hill exclusively interviewed Lee Marvin. <laughs> I don't even know if Lee Marvin's been in any Walter Hill movies. I don't think he has. But Lee Marvin seems to me to when I think of Walter Hill, I think of Lee Marvin. I bet you're a big Lee Marvin guy fan. Mm-hmm. Damn it. I ruined I don't even sound like Michael Madsen and I ruined the line anyway. So we should probably get to the show and stop fucking around. And we actually we have an email. We do. Oh, by the way, by the, I do want to do. Uh, I do want to do a real quick uh, sort of public service announcement. We what is have, it? What is it? What is it? We have a hotline. All right, we have a phone number where you can leave us messages. Yeah, we didn't get any in a while, so we, we should. No, we never yeah. get any. And here's my here's here's what I'm giving to all of you. All right, the number is two two four three six six nine five two eight. That's two two four. Three six six nine five two eight. I recommend you put that in your cell phone. And what you do is, anytime you see a movie, go ahead, give us a call. You know, you see, you come out of a theater, give us a call. You know, when you you have that the moment you're out of the theater and you want to talk about it to someone, call us. Give us like a little thirty second little rundown of how you felt about the movie. Yeah, you, maybe do start doing it with the Hunger Games or something. Yeah, you know? and then we'll we'll play it on the podcast. Yeah. You know, we'll play these little you know keep it keep it pithy, keep it brief, but then yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, like your first initial impressions walking out of the theater. Yeah, or maybe just some horrible person you sat next to who wouldn't stop playing Angry Birds. You know, we want to hear about these things. Yeah. So, 224. If you just walked out of the hospital and, you know, just had your spleen removed. Please update us on how your aunt's uh, vocal cord surgery is going. Absolutely. If you call with a positive review of Mirror Mirror, they will kill you. That is true. That is one, yeah, that is one caveat we should put out there. We will murder anyone who says nice things about Julia Roberts. We can't help it. We we even kind of like Julia Roberts, but if you say anything nice about her, there's a little, that's like the sleeper word, you know? Like, that's that's like the Manchurian candidate that sets us off and then we have to kill you. So uh, anyway, the number again, 224-366-9528. Good work. Yeah. So I want to get that. We still haven't found out what that spells. We probably should do that yeah. before the next show. I, in, in, our, in our luck, it spells... Uh, it, it ends up, douchebag. <laughs> it spells douchebag or Clint Howard. <laughs> or it'll just be like Justine Bateman or something like that. I so uh, anyway, that. we got an email. We do. It's from Thomas Wishloff. 
and uh, oh, he's he's a bit of a youngin, which is really cool. Um, he says, my name is Thomas Wishloff, just like I said. Spoiler warnings, Jim. I am 16 years old and have just recently become addicted to film. I run a blog called the 1001 Films Project.tumblr.com. Original, originally, this was meant to be a blog that me and my friends were going to do. The premise was to watch all the films from the book 1001 Movies to See Before You Die. And it, by the way, good book. Unfortunately, unfortunately, my friends were quite useless, and I was left to manage the whole blog by myself. Mm-hmm. I was getting quite discouraged and decided to give up my quest. Then I stumbled upon your podcast via iTunes by accident. Uh, the podcast I listened to, the Christopher Nolan episode, completely revived my interest in the blog. I was stunned at your guys' knowledge and fun ways to keep my attention on what you were saying. I can't thank you enough. I appreciate your efforts. This is from Thomas, a very, very supportive email, but he also adds a little postscript here by saying, I dislike Heat 2. Jim is not the only one. Mm-hmm. Well, in fairness, I want to say that I haven't seen Heat since I rented it many, many years ago, um, and I didn't like it at the time I saw it, and I'm very curious and excited to rewatch it, given all the acclaim it's gotten over the years, and I want to see if I'm crazy or not about Michael Mann. If I recall correctly, uh, you were, can you, when it, like many people, do... You know, admittedly, due to the advertising, the way it was advertised, you were thinking it would be more of an Al Pacino, Robert De Niro playing off each other. Yeah, yeah, and I did like the shootout sequence, the extended uh, action sequence in it. Um, but my memory of it isn't too funny. Do you like? Or do you like? Heat, do you like? Do you like Heat? Do you like Heat, Mike? I think Heat is my favorite Michael Mann film. I keep uh, hearing that. On yeah. some days, I'll on some days I'll say Manhunter, but uh, I love Heat. I think it is the masterpiece that people make it out to be. I think both performances are brilliant. Uh, Hmm. I'm a total Michael Mann junkie. Um, A lot of people are. Huge Miami Vice fan. Uh, I still haven't finished all the luck, but uh, I'm I'm sad that it got canceled. Um, Yeah. You know who isn't sad? The horses. (laughs) (laughs) The horses were finished with luck. Yeah. Which? Well, I bet I bet you're sad that Julia Roberts didn't get involved on Luck. Oh no! Oh. But uh, but I did. If you look carefully, there's a Sarah Jessica Parker cameo uh, <laughs> in the second <laughs> episode. So. That always has to happen. I think she's actually a regular on the show. Yeah. Hmm. Couldn't couldn't tell. Couldn't tell. <laughs> All right. Anyway, thank you Thanks, so Thomas. much for the email. Yeah, that was really cool to read. Mm-hmm. Keep Six, it up. Sixteen is definitely a good age to get into movies. And uh, that book, and especially the 1001 films you should see before you die, is a good way to get into films. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I was 16, everyone's like, oh, you're really into films? You need to watch Requiem for a Dream and <laughs> Garden State. Like, it was literally like anything that wasn't a big budget action movie was considered really deep. And But that book is legitimately good at covering the wide history of film, mm-hmm. which – and, you know, in a lot of ways has inspired the way we approach this show. So uh, good on you. Yeah, absolutely. When I was 16, I saw Pulp Fiction, and that's when everything changed. Yeah. I saw Pulp Fiction when I was 13. Ooh. Hmm. I, I, no, I can't. Uh, I'm going to call it. What, are we, are we, I'm sorry. Are we playing Name That Tune, or are we... 
<laughs> I could name Pulp Fiction in 13 words. All right, let's go ahead and talk about what we watched this week. Hmm. <laughs> what did we watch this week? What did we watch this week? What did we watch? Donnie Darko. What did we watch this week? What did we watch this week? What did we watch? <laughs> Fantastic Mr. Fox. I watched Never Let Me Go. Gattaca and Blow. <laughs> what did we watch? Dog Day Afternoon. You've been watching films all night and day. Ouch. What did we watch? Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Did we watch Inglorious Bastards after my microphone fell over? Speaking of mics, uh, Mike, we, would you like to go first? <laughs> sure. Uh, saw 21 Jump Street the other night. Hey, Jim saw oh, that. I did see it, and I, I quite enjoyed it. I was very impressed with it. It is, and don't take this as an insult, the dragnet of this decade. Oh, I like that. I, I, I can get behind that. Yep. Um, I think that. Channing Tatum is brilliant. I never thought I good. He's pro- he's probably the dumbest cop in a movie since Frank Drebin. <laughs> the the, the like- montage of them trying the drug, brilliant. Just mm-hmm. the yeah the, the Urkel like reflexes that he has in the band class, and also when he just yells "fuck you, science." <laughs> probably yeah. the line of the movie for me yeah the uh when they take the drug it's one of the funniest moments in the movie and i'm kind of i feel like that's become you know a crutch for a lot of comedy i think it's i think it's been an overused trope for mm-hmm. a long time now where somebody takes either ecstasy or hallucinogen and all uh, i stuff. love i love when they take acid and then all of a yeah. sudden it becomes like a it becomes something that you would see projected at a grateful dead show like that's not what acid is like no and <laughs> what drug a little, do they there's take a little bit there's a little bit of that i don't it's some sort of like it's holy fucking shit that's okay. what it's called yeah nice yeah. hfs for short um, I, I always like Channing Tatum. Have you, did you guys see uh, Guide to Recognizing Your Saints? Sorry, my phone is ringing. Do you guys ever see Guide to Recognizing Your Saints? No. I have. Yeah, I think yeah, he's, he's very good in that. He's good in that. And I liked him in Haywire. I didn't actually end up seeing Haywire. Oh, yeah, that's right. He is in Haywire. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. all right in that. I was sort of more focused on the uh, female lead of that film, but all mm-hmm. the uh, supporting players were quite good in that movie. It was like it was like they made a Steven Seagal movie that had a core <laughs> and a backbone, mm-hmm. yeah. and Steven Seagal was a hot chick who could kick your ass. Now we'll you have to see. We'll have to see what he does with Soderbergh's next movie, where he plays a male stripper. Uh, Magic. A- a- that's he is a ex stripper. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. He is uh, actually an ex stripper, which is I always thought was a sort of interesting part of his story. Mm-hmm. I would like to go back and say I I want to fully embrace. Um, this idea that I guess I think st- maybe started with Taken where let's take the most base kind of Steven Seagal movie, but let's sort of pump it with a little something extra. In the case of Taken, it was Liam Neeson's Gravitas. And I guess in the case of Haywire, it's this 
sort of lean, almost art film kind of stripped down nature. And yeah, um, I felt like I was watching a Don Siegel film. Yeah. Or Mm. like a Euro crime thing, like point blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and that's was, what the limey was. Too. Let's let's take this. Like, I would love, you know, I because uh, you know I think Quentin Tarantino has done a lot for you know seventies and eighties exploitation films, but I think now it's time someone looks back at the uh, Seagal movies and then uh, sort of takes inspiration from them and you know redefines well, indie films. At some point, I, and this isn't going to be for a while, but um, one of the movies I recently rewatched. It wasn't going to be the main one I discussed, but. I think The Fugitive is a masterpiece. And oh, really? Andrew Davis is probably, I don't know, one of my favorite action directors, and he's responsible for the best Seagal movie, Above the Law. Right. And... Uh, Out for Justice is actually the best Seagal movie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and this isn't Seagal, but, I mean, what is The Hunger Games other than just uh, a tween version of Hard to Kill, you know? It's a tween <laughs> version of Running Man. It's a tween version of Surviving the Game. And it's Battle Royale. Twi- <laughs> and Battle Royale. <laughs> All these, yeah, all the things that keep coming up in other reviews. But I think it's interesting with 21 Jump Street, it was directed by the guys who did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and the screenplay is by the guy who adapted Scott Pilgrim. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. One of the guys who screwed up Scott Pilgrim. Uh, (laughs) I like Scott Pilgrim a lot, but that was fine. I like it. I think think Scott Pilgrim is about as good of a Scott Pilgrim film adaptation as you could get. That being said, I don't think it should have been a film adaptation. You're probably right. That's sort of how I feel about Watchmen. Uh, I really do feel – I mean, that's not true because I think a lot of the performances are very shitty in Watchmen, but – I think, yeah. in general, the the sort of script and direction of Watchmen is about as good as you could hope, and also not nearly good enough. No. Well, nobody could do Rorschach other than Jackie Earl Haley. I thought that, and then I didn't like him in the movie. Like, I was one of the people who was super yeah, excited. He was fine. And, I've, and then I ended up thinking it was kind of hollow. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't help that it's a character. I don't know. Like, I think... I'm, and I and I get the whole idea that a lot of the things that are silly are meant to be sort of spoofs on the superhero movies. So I get mm-hmm. that his voice was sort of a takeoff of the Bat voice, you know, Bale's Bat voice. But at the same time, I think all of his monologues read a lot better when you just read them, you know, in the comic as diary entries than as him than as him narrating them. But anyway, um, real quick, I want to ask: Twenty One Jump Street is that a? Uh, was it feel like? Is that feel like an Apatow movie? Does that feel like maybe like Observe and Report? What what uh, other comedies would you? No. What other comedies would you compare it to? Um. Well, Dragnet is okay. Is yeah, one yeah, of yeah. The I would agree reference with that. Points. Uh, but it does. So, it's funny you bring up Observe and Report. I think it expands on a theme of Observe and Report where. The protagonists are these sort of postmodern characters who have grown up watching too many action movies, and they think their life is going to be an action movie. Oh, I see. That's mm. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I would compare it a little bit to the other guys, only not as not. I mean, it's not. I, it's not as McKay. Right. <laughs> it's not quite as silly. It doesn't have as much of the absurd humor. That and it McKay doesn't have. Does for. it? Is the dialogue have that improvised feel? Or does it? Or does it mostly feel scripted? I think for the most part it feels pretty scripted. But I think Jonah Hill might have inserted some of his own improvisational moments okay. in it that works very fast. There's a lot of kind of pop, pop culture references that I found kind of cute, and they're like throwaways that mm-hmm. I I am pretty sure that Jonah Hill would throw in something like mm-hmm. you know because the girl he has a crush on is named Molly, and at one point he goes, "Hey, Paul Blart, Molly Cop." 
<laughs> just like just, just those, like little things in the background that are kind of goofy and cute. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did you notice that all that uh, it's a Sony release and. Every time Sony puts out a movie, if there is a poster for a movie or they're showing a movie in the movie or there's electronics, they're all from Sony. Uh, hmm. Makes sense. I, I mean, they, they all have bio computers, and I was sort of nerding <laughs> out every, every time a bio showed up in the that movie. That is funny. But, yeah, like that's the that's the major paradigm in laptops, right? Vio? Yeah, of course. Yeah, either see Vio or an Apple. <laughs> that's just how well, it is. Sorry, the phone is um, ringing again. Um, go ahead, well, My Mike. favorite is on Breaking Bad, where all of the good guys have bios and then you see <laughs> gus's computer and it's a samsung <laughs> of course that's wow i mean that's semiotics 101 samsung equals the 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 the, the villain you know um fuck samsung yeah yeah uh jim i wanted to bring up a movie because i was debating of you know sort of because i saw a few things and i was debating. Oh, i could go the goofy fun route but i want to go with a movie that is appropriately titled heavy Mm-hmm. Directed by James Mangold. Now, this was co-written by Judd Apatow, and it's about these lovable losers <laughs> at a fat camp, right? No, not quite. No, um, I wouldn't even call the the, the main guy in this the, movie the one guy uh, he, lovable. Said, he tapes salami. The show that comes on after Two and a Half Men that my parents <laughs> love. <sighs> not no, sorry. Okay, um, this is. I'm sorry. I was interrupting you. This is actually the Heavy D biopic, the recently deceased Heavy D from Heavy D and the Boys, right? That's called No We Found Love. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. I'm so it's glad that Jim. Oh, of heavy metal. Oh God, Jim. Oh, yeah. Jim, oh. you were able to pull a Heavy D reference. I'm like so proud of you. Okay, I'm heavy. No, no more interruptions, he, please, he, he Jim. Ain't heavy. He's my brother. <laughs> I don't know what the <laughs> fuck I'm going off on now. Um, this movie. <laughs> This movie, you're not going to be laughing as much as we are now. Uh, it's really. Uh, are you peeing? Oh no, you're you're pouring. Okay. I'm sorry. Whenever I think about um, whenever I think about late '80s rap, it just it gets my bladder going. Please continue. This is from uh, 1995. I can't believe that this movie, Safe and Crumb, all came out the same year, and I would have a tough time mm-hmm. deciding which one I love the most. I believe now. that's why 1995 is called uh, America's Suicide Year. That would be very <laughs> true. Well, I was just thinking about this, and we'll touch on this later. 1995 was year of neon cyberpunk movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd be correct. Heavy is not that, though. No, what it is, is not. It's a very understated sort of David Gordon Green-esque uh, minimalist tale about small town people kind of just working a dead-end job and you know living in a very um you know sort of secluded environment that's you know mostly forest land and farmland and um the main characters all work in a diner together uh pruitt taylor vince plays the lead character and he lives with his mother played by shelly winters and uh the uh, Shelly Winters owns the diner that he works in, mm-hmm. and she hires a, a new waitress, uh, played by Liv Tyler, and uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince, the lead character, he, he winds up having an unrequited crush uh, on Liv Tyler, and it, that's part of what the movie is about, but it's really uh, this insane kind of uh, combination of, you got the unrequited love angle, of course, but it's also about how these 
people are lost within themselves and have no idea how to connect with other people. And to the point where I would say that Victor, the, the, the lead guy and the, the, the lead character in the movie, he says less than Ryan Gosling does in Drive. He's oh, just, wow. He's just, wow. He, when, people, when people come up and ask him something, like when his mother gets sick and she's at the hospital and like a nurse comes up and asks him questions, he doesn't even respond. He doesn't know how to literally talk to most people. So no, he, does, he doesn't literally not know how to talk. Uh, well, he knows how to talk, but he doesn't. When when it comes to social interaction, okay. he's really stilted, and he just doesn't. He'll say something, but it's probably one word answers, and uh, it's like seeing introverts in as a horror movie for me. Like because I've always been kind of introverted, but this is like an exaggerated sort of horror version of it and it's not a horror movie but it just there are moments especially with the score that it plays like this really dark ambient um guitar drone kind of a score by thurston moore of sonic youth no less um that and it accompanies a lot of scenes where he just starts binge eating because he's depressed and uh his mother is really sick He, he he can't seem to find somebody to share his life with he feels like he's trapped in this town and um, you know, he has a, a, a mutual connection of sorts, but it's mostly just a friendship with this girl. And she has an asshole boyfriend, played by the lead singer of the Lemonheads, who um, I can attest it seems like an asshole. Mm-hmm. So I think it's typecasting. <laughs> but I can't, no, I can't speak for it. I've never met him. But i just seen him live, and he seems like an asshole. Mm-hmm. Um, and Deborah Harry also plays one of the other waitresses. Would you in- say that he left you with a sour taste in your mouth? Indeed. <laughs> Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, this is, it's so weird because I, th- I'm, I have a, I had a vague memory of seeing this movie when it first came out because I was just getting into independent film and I might have rented it and didn't, ha- it didn't have the impact on me that it has today because I sort of looked at it in a whole different way of like, wow, I mean, I've been shy and I've been overweight, but holy shit, I was never this this cut off from people mm-hmm. and it gave me a sense of comfort, but so much empathy for someone who goes through this, um, you know, inarticulation and, uh, uh, has an inability to really meet anybody because of his shyness and his insecurities as well. But it's an amazing performance by this guy, Pruitt Taylor Vince. He's mostly been a character actor, like a side actor. And, uh, he has a legitimate eye disorder and he always looks like in every movie, like his eyes are shifting constantly, like wavering back and forth. And throughout this entire movie, you just he's, he looks like he's on the verge of tears. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really powerful, understated movie. Not a whole lot happens, but you get really caught up in the characters. It's one of the strongest, like um, in terms of characterization, I think it's pretty amazing. And uh it, it, it made me really appreciate James Mangold in a whole new way because I really like Copland, but this seemed like it was like the blueprint for Copland, where you know he got more um, you know money and more uh, and obviously bigger oh, names. How, how, do, how would you say? And this you have an overweight protagonist in Copland. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. It, well, but no, I mean, other than the overweight protagonist, why would you say this feels like a blueprint for? I mean, it's, this sounds to me very different. I think, than I think it's. Because it's focusing on one central area 
And oh, it's got a, a strong sense of location. Strong sense of location. Yeah. That's and one. The, that is one of the best parts about Copland. And the characters are sort of all in the same circle, mm-hmm. and they all interact in different ways, and they all conflict. Um, you I know, see. it's and it's and you know, Liv Tyler. She does what she can. I mean, she's obviously very beautiful, but I think she does give a, a really sympathetic performance because yeah. you can tell she really wants to get out of the of, of her relationship, but not and you know, not willing enough to. Look past certain things. Now, now this sounds. I mean, I don't want to. This really does sound like a good movie. But would you say this? Like, there's something I've noticed lately in indie movies that always bugs me, and it's this sort of this thing where any any like indie film that is serious and takes place in the Midwest, it's just about everyone is fucking depressed and horror. Like, oh, we need to get the fuck out of the Midwest. Like. Every single person is trapped. I don't like think, it, I don't think like it's necessarily seems, like they want to get out of the Midwest. They just want to find their purpose in a way that's outside of like working at a diner. I guess they feel they feel trapped. But I mean, he wants to become you know a real chef as opposed to working in a diner. Mm-hmm. So you know, but he still feels like he has a certain role that he has to abide by at all times. You know, and a lot of that has to do with his relationship at living at home and sort of taking care of his mom, making her breakfast all the time. He feels like a sense of obligation. Right. And I feel that's how most of the characters are. I wouldn't say they're all depressed and this is a depressing movie. I think it's it's sad, but hopeful, too. I think that, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't give it away where it goes either, but I think the ending is very bittersweet and kind of uh, kind of says something that, you know what, maybe this small town isn't going to be so bad. I mean, that's kind of like the message I got from it, and that's something rare. Oh, really? Whereas, like... So it isn't just, like, a depression. Like, it has a hopeful ending? Yeah, I feel like I should accept where I am and try to make more of an effort to not look away from the people that I'm surrounded by. I mean, I mean, it's sort of... I mean, I'm sort of reading a little bit more into it than that's probably there with the with the final scenes, but... It doesn't. Sh- it doesn't I, really I don't shout know. I, anything. I feel. At you. I feel like. I feel like you can't read too much into something. But I feel I, like something exists, and if you're trying to say this is what James Mangold was trying to do, then it's like, well, that can be you know proven wrong because he can say no, I meant this. But um, but again, and we brought this up on the last episode. There's a lot of projection that goes into this kind of a movie for me because I ne- didn't necessarily experience you know beat by beat what he did in the mm-hmm. movie. But I can recognize moments where, like, oh, yeah, that's a version of that has happened. And I feel hopeful, so maybe that is reflecting of the ending. James Mangold's films have that effect, because whenever I screw up, like, in my life, you know, uh, I always hear Robert De Niro going, You blew it! (laughs) You blew it! So, uh, no. No, that's just your boss at work. (laughs) That's that's right. I can totally see Bill doing that. (laughs) Um, No, no, it wouldn't be Bill. It would be be the district manager. Let's not start naming names. I'm looking forward. We'll probably not do James Mangold anytime soon. But it's weird how much he stumbled at one point because, like, I I know a lot of people who have sort of defended identity. I think. Fuck identity. Fuck that movie. Fuck that movie. I. Uh, uh, so, Mike, how do you feel about identity? <laughs> it's, a, it's a movie that I got really caught up I in as I'm watching it. I hate the ending. I hate it. Do you, ever, do, do you ever see the uh, Do you ever see the Mister Show sketch um, where it's all these people on a subway and there's this old lady and there's like a sad man and there's a pretty woman and then there's the gay punk and then at the end 
And then at the end of it, it reveals that this was all, uh, it was all a, like, this whole thing was a demonstration to reveal. He's like, from the psychiatrist, who's like, I've written a book about the five voices we all have in our head. The old lady, <laughs> the gay punk, the sad man, and the pretty woman. Like, and then, it, and then that's, apply, that's uh, what, identity is basically like apply, someone watched. And ten little Indians. Yeah, yeah. Someone, someone watched that that's Mr. Show sketch uh, and then go, oh, no, that would make a good thriller. <laughs> I, identity, uh, it ends the same way that St. Elsewhere did. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that. No, but it's too bad because I, I really love Heavy. I really love Copland. Girl Interrupted, yeah. it's pretty good. I, I like it. Just, but, it's, again, it's a psychology bias. Again, I like that movie. But then he did King Leopold and then wound up sucking. Three, I mean, I, I don't, I don't hate, know. I don't, I, hate, I don't hate Watch the Line. I think there's good performances I, in it. I mean, I understand that in this podcast especially, we take great pains to sort of talk about, you know, directors as auteurs and directors as artists and stuff. But at the same time, this is their job. And when yeah. James Mangold does Kate Leopold, it's not, oh, man, you fucked up big time. It's, oh, man, you wanted to a job and you wanted to prove to Hollywood that you weren't just doing these sort of independent sure. movies. You could, you know, so I I mean, at the same, you, you don't say. And we're going to talk about Gore Verbinski at some point, too. Oh, yeah. He, Gore Verbinski is great. He's excellent. An excellent example of him, that. I think him and Richard Donner are the examples of people who are able to do different things and sure. able to make them their own, even you know, even if they're not the uh, you know the the ideal auteur. Um, but apparently, he's doing uh, the Wolverine movie in 2013. So Gore is. Yeah. No. Um. James Mangold. So right, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I don't yeah. know. Three ten to Huma was to Huma to Huma. <laughs> It was capable. That was a fine movie. It's, it's Juma. Return to Yuma's great. I thought it was fine. Yeah. I, I mean, it's. I don't have anything. I think it was a bit long, but I thought it was pretty good. It was, it was a bit long, and I mean, there wasn't a lot to it, but all the action scenes was good. Uh, you know, For it worked sure. good, and it was, you know, it was only a bit long. It wasn't way too long, which is like Ben Foster. As far really as good. as far as westerns go, Ben Foster uh, yeah. Karate Explosion. I think that's... what. <laughs> That's something Brendan Leonard, our past guest and future guest um, for the Michael Mann episode, Brendan Leonard, uh, says a lot, the Ben Foster karate explosion. And I don't understand. It's like an inside joke, but it makes me laugh every time because I imagine Speaking ben... of karate explosion, yeah. uh, what is your opinion on the perfect weapon? I didn't see that. What is wow, the perfect weapon? Wow, I haven't... Jesus Christ. I haven't seen that since I was like... Is, is that a... Uh, who, who did... there, there is a karate explosion at the end. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Forget all about that. That's one of those movies that I kept seeing like previews on when we had pay per view. Viewer's and, choice. Yeah, viewers, <laughs> that's a viewer's choice. Exactly. Or, or, did you, or were you in an area that had requests? I'm pretty sure it was viewer's choice. Mm-hmm. That's what I had. Yeah. You know the first movie I ever watched pay per view? Hmm. Uh, Stepmom. Oh. <laughs> Another. Oh fuck! Movie. I just said something nice about Julia Roberts. God damn it! Uh, triggered in Even- my head. Now I gotta kill myself. Okay, uh, I wa- I watched because um, we were watching you know a lot of Catherine Bigelow movies. I watched K nineteen, then I remembered the Widowmaker. Yeah, the widow, the Widowmaker, uh, which was I I think the unsuccessful uh, sort of spinoff of Mentos. Um, but uh, I, I thought it was maybe like the tenth sequel to K nine. But yeah, 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 I was disappointed. <laughs> but no, so and I mean I was excited to watch it because I like Catherine Bigelow and I like submarine movies and I thought it was a you know I mean that's not gonna be one of the movies. By the way, I don't think we ever said we're talking about – I think we completely forgot to say. <laughs> I mean they know. 
they do know. They double clicked it. Like there's, they're not hearing this. This is on the radio. But yeah, we're talking about Catherine Bigelow. We're going to be talking about Strange Days. I almost feel like this episode's going to be a litmus test. Should Jim and Patrick drink? No, always, <laughs> always drink more. And when driving, um, we were no, we're doing Strange Days and we're doing Point Break. But oh shit, we're not doing Strange Brew. Oh yeah, I know. Oh, oh. boy. Uh, so, uh, so I watched K-19, and then I remembered, oh, wasn't there another submarine movie that came out around the same time? And it actually was two years earlier. I was remembering wrong. But I, so I watched U-571. And U-571... Saw that in theaters. Yeah, U-571 yeah, is much better than K-19. It is, it is like the perfect sort of tight, you know, submarine thriller that has no lasting... You don't think about it ever again. You know, it isn't Crimson Tide where there are these amazing performances and sort of interesting ideas at play about nuclear deterrence and stuff like that. Mm. It is literally just like, what are we going to do next? How are they going to get out of this one? You know, and it's and I think that's fine. I, I think that's great. I think great cast. Uh, no, <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> say that. any movie that's fronted by Matthew McConaughey and he isn't being a creep. That's oh. that's a problem. He's a creep. When he's in, you know, keep living, man. Who? L I V I N living. Who is that guy? That's my Matthew McConaughey impression. Oh, is that from Frailty? No, that's I thought, from. You know what I thought? Can <laughs> I tell you what? I, <laughs> can I tell you what I heard? Hmm. I, t- I heard you say it's got Gabe Livin, and I was trying to remember what actor <laughs> Gabe Livin was. No, um, no, and it's got. You know, it's got like a wasted performance from Harvey Keitel. It's the only, but it, I will give it the benefit. It's the only movie that knows what to do with John Bon Jovi, which is don't give him any lines and then it blow him up. <laughs> so, spoiler it, alert. <laughs> one of the problems I have with U five seven one is that it wastes Bill Paxton. That's sad. I, I'm I'm not I'm not as big a Bill Paxton fan as some. I think he's fine, but. I wouldn't say like pretty awesome in the, I wouldn't say the movie films. would have gained anything by keeping him around. Uh, I like I, and Matthew McConaughey, even though I do think he should only play creeps, um, and that I think you know I think frailty would count in that. But man, I love them high school girl. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he's when he's that when he's in Texas Chainsaw Massacre: Next Generation. He's actually no, he's good. In, the movie's horrible, but he's good in that. <laughs> Frailty. He wasn't a creep in the Lincoln Lawyer, and he did okay. He was all right in the Lincoln Lawyer. Dude. I didn't see that Lincoln Lawyer. Hit that mine. shit up. Sometime. I think, and I think he's fine in this. He bugs his eye. Like he doesn't have a character at all, but he like bugs his eyes out, and he gets real sweaty, and is like, "What are we gonna do?" And that's enough. Like he, he looks a little bit like Large Marge. For yeah, <laughs> exactly. He looked. He does his Large Marge impression, and it works. And the movie works. I love submarine movies, though. Is what I wanted to say. Basically, I think submarine movies are the best. Because Although you have not seen the movie Submarine. No, I haven't I haven't seen Submarine, but I have seen Yellow Submarine. Okay. And I think that's way I'll let better. You have to hook. Yeah, I, um but um no Have I you think, seen The Substitute? No, I haven't seen The Substitute, uh but I have That's a submarine movie? Yeah. Oh I get it, I get it. Okay, it took me a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, you know yeah. sub Mike 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 was being subversive just then. Uh, I thought that doing. joke was kind of sub yeah. All right. Anyway, um, and I want to talk. Which I want to talk about submarine movies, basically, because U five seven one. There's not a lot to talk about. It's basically just what do we do next? Okay, we did that. Now what do we do? But I do want to talk, just like for a few seconds, about how much I love Breakdown, because and that's Jonathan Mostow's movie before he made U five seven one. All right, you I have ten perfect, seconds. That ten is a seconds perfect, talking about Breakdown. Perfect movie. 
That's all I'm going to say. It took just, two. That was uh, two Kurt, seconds. Kurt Russell, J.T. Walsh, fucking tight action chase movie. I saw like three is times Is that the, the one theater. where Kurt Russell wears glasses or is that executive decision? That's executive decision. That's executive decision. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt Russell shouldn't wear glasses. I just think that if you want to have a 90-minute tight, awesome action movie where you get really involved and shit gets fucking insane. And, it's, and to me, that movie, it doesn't ever feel implausible. And J.T. Walsh, she's just the best bad guy. So All right, well, that, was an, that was an extra off. that was an extra eight seconds. I know, but, but I just I just want to defend that movie as many times as I can. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um I I, I um K nineteen actually just made me think about how much I love Crimson Tide. Cause, yeah, that's my favorite. Because I mean movie. have you guys seen the Kane mutiny? With no, Humphrey, I haven't. Humphrey Bogart and uh, Lee Marvin and Fred McMurray and uh, Jose Ferreira. God, that's a good cast. I better stop. Saying no, Miguel Ferreira, because Jose Ferreira, who you no, know, it's Jose Ferreira. Oh, yeah, Miguel Ferreira is the okay. I got the father and son mixed up. That movie's great. Um, that movie is basically Humphrey Bogart as this sort of you know staunch, uh, uptight, you know draconian kind of. Uh, you know, captain and how it puts people into danger and then how when they relieve him of his command, you know, they end up being on trial. So like and so and it's basically the basis of like every Navy movie you've ever like it's Crimson Tide, K-19, like all those movies where people are struggling and it's all about chain of command and shit. Mm-hmm. It all came from K-Mutiny and, I'm a, and uh, that, that's great. I fucking love that movie. Crimson Tide, I think, might be even better. Yes, because um, it has been the most memorable one for me. It has the greatest like rewatch. Value. It has the greatest the rewatch. Yeah, but the greatest like face to face showdown in like mm-hmm. maybe cinematic history. You, you were talking about Heat earlier. Forget Heat. Forget that fucking diner scene when Denzel Washington and uh, Gene Hackman are yelling at each other, and they're not even looking at each other, and they're both yelling at each other and yelling at the person who Gene Hackman just told to arrest Denzel Washington. And they're just fucking screaming. And honestly, you completely like one of the most interesting things about that movie is that, you know, because it's a mainstream Hollywood movie that it won't be World War Three. Like, you know, that in the end, Denzel Washington is right. There's never a point where. But at the same time, it takes such pains like it lays out exactly what Gene Hackman um, like exactly why Gene Hackman is thinking that way. And it's not Mm -hmm. that he's crazy and it's not that he's stubborn. It's that. Like it, like it makes what his it makes his side downright, you know, downright sensible and you know logical, and so there's this, you know, there's an actual like it's a fucking Tony Scott movie, and there's like legitimate ideas. <laughs> and like, he's, he finally like gets control of the camera. I mean, maybe it's because he's in an enclosed space. Well, he can't go I mean, crazy that, this, no, this was before. I mean, this is. Uh, I think Man on Fire was sort of. Maybe there was a movie yeah. before that, but I think Man of Fire was when he entered his Probably. modern stage of filmmaking where right. everything, like the, all the color correction was crazy and the contrast was mm-hmm. super high and, the, and there was just right. nonstop editing. Um, but this the thing is, is that uh, I hate to tell you guys this, but I enjoy Domino. Hey, I enjoy Domino too. It's fucking insane. I'm gonna have to watch and it. It's everybody's too long. been talking about it on Letterboxd. So I'm gonna, it's I'm too long, it. but I don't think it's good, but I enjoy it. I mean,. But in terms of Tony Scott, nothing tops True Romance or The Last Boy Scout. I think the True Romance is a little overrated. 
I would, I would, I think Crimson Tide might be his best movie, honestly. I Last Boy Scout or Crimson Tide would be tied for me because I mm-hmm. fucking I love Crimson Tide, but Last Boy Scout, all the performances. I mean that I when Bruce Willis was on, he was so fucking good. Die yeah. Hard and Last Boy Scout are just the best Bruce, most Bruce Willisy you could expect from him with the best script mm-hmm. supporting him because he he would be super Bruce Willisy before. You know, and even in movies like more dramatic movies like The Siege, he's yeah. good, you know, um, but like Last Boy Scout and Die Hard are just so. I, I have a soft spot, soft spot, soft yeah. spot for Enemy of the State, almost mainly because of the cast. But, you know, the, the, the when you rewatch that movie now and see all the character actors in it that we had no idea who they were when that movie came out, it's kind of fun. But it's also like. Tony Scott loves the conversation and he wants to fuck with it. <laughs> um, so, um, I I don't know why I, I probably should be pissed about that, but I I still find it fun. Maybe oh, why would you be pissed? I don't know. I don't like I love people the conversation. Get... Look, okay, I have... you don't if you don't want Ridley Scott to do a prequel to Alien, just don't watch Prometheus. Like you don't, you know, like this is I'm this... more accepting of that. I well, no, 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 I know. I'm just I'm just use this because that was a recent example. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, how about this? Uh, Brett Ratner is set to direct the sequel to Midnight Run. Bullshit. Oh. Yeah, no, I know. It's it sounds fucking horrible. But here's the thing: you don't have to see it, and you don't have to accept it. The example I always use is Halloween. You know, Halloween. Uh, Loomis shoots him. He falls off the balcony. When he goes, when he goes to check, the body's gone. The body could be anywhere, right? And that's how the movie ends. You don't know what happened. But Halloween 2 says what actually happened was he snuck away and then went into a bickering old couple's house where he stole their knife. Like, because that's how that movie opens. So you can say, oh, well, now that ruins the first one. No, it doesn't. You just watch the first one as the first one. You don't. So, but you know. But you're still going to watch Halloween 2 anyway. Well, no, no. You can watch it. But I'm saying you can. I I am capable of accepting multiple continuities. And I think Halloween is a perfect example you're of that. You're a big fan of the multiverse theory. Right. The multiverse theory and multiplicity. Right. Um, and multi-ball when I'm playing pinball. Anything like that. Um, I play a meat and pinball, by the way. But no, what I'm saying is, like, you can accept multiple continuities, and in the case of Halloween, that's actually, like, necessary, because Halloween has the continuity of the first movie is just one movie, then you have the continuity of the third movie, which has nothing to do with the either. But I think I should still have the right to be upset that Brett Ratner... I don't know, it's, it's... I almost feel like okay. okay. You can be you can be upset about maybe wasted potential, but like midnight. What made Midnight Run special wasn't a premise. I'm not gonna lose sleep over. No, it's the writing. It's the acting. Yeah, it's the. So like, it's not like okay. I mean, unless like the only way you would ever get excited about a Midnight Run sequel to begin with was if it was a good person behind the camera, right? Yeah. So there's no like. I guess you can be upset about wasted potential, but even, like, that sort of... I mean, it's not going to be the same actors either, I would assume, right? Right, exactly. I, I wouldn't think so. Maybe... I mean, it wouldn't what be Charles... It Charles wouldn't be Charles Grodin, but... Fuck, I didn't, I didn't read any of the news articles. I just heard about it. What the fuck are they getting... Now that I think about it, how the, are they doing a sequel to Midnight Run? They better not. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, work. by the way, you want to get those teen audiences in. No, nothing teens love more than fucking Midnight Run. What a great franchise that to movie, dig up. That's one of those smart. movies. That's if You've it's probably on. seen Midnight Run. Yeah. But the, I, I and, think if you're, you know, why not remake? Why not they decide to just remake it? And bad idea. But I'm just gonna say, if they were to remake Midnight Run, Brian Cranston is the Duke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's a good uh, when idea. Is, yeah, when is Brian Cranston and John Hamm, for that matter, going to start doing leading roles oh in movies? Oh, God. If you like they prove themselves. The I think the universe would clap in, collapse in on of itself. You get those both two of those actors. two? I yeah, don't know. I, I, I don't know. I love I mean, It depends on the script, obviously. I don't know. They, they, don't, they aren't two actors that I would assume a chemistry. You know what I mean? So what uh, what other sub I haven't seen that many other than your no. Das Boot runs Das Boot of course is one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. Um I think I saw a horror movie that took place on a submarine below. I, yeah. Darren Aronofsky uh, wrote that. And then let's not uh forget the uh oh, the, yeah. the two for of 89 Deep Star 6 and Leviathan. Yes, you wanted to talk about Leviathan Deep Star 6. I'm sorry Mike. Here is your opportunity. Uh, Leviathan is a wonderful, really underrated film that steals liberally from Alien and Aliens and The Thing. Uh, good movies to steal from. What? I said, I'm sorry. I said good movies to steal from. Uh, basically, an American oil drilling crew is underwater and they discover a Russian vessel that has a mutagen in it. And it sneaks into Daniel Stern's vodka bottle. Chaos ensues, and stellar cast. That's uh, how Peter I got. Weller. That's how I snuck into Bonnaroo last year. I, I just snuck into Daniel Stern's vodka bottle. Man, I did. <laughs> I snuck into uh, Craig T. Nelson's tequila bottle, and I, I. It got you nowhere but a, but like uh, Republican rallies. <laughs> <laughs> No, I turned into a giant human I'm sorry, who, who, who's in Leviathan? Well, you've got a stellar cast of genre stalwarts. Peter Weller, Richard Crenna, Ernie Hudson, um, Amanda Pays, who's very sexy in the film. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern, uh, who's very sexy in the film. <laughs> he uh, always no, is. No. Daniel. Man, oh God! I just put I just put shut on and hit mute and go to town. You know what I mean? You don't know how many times I jerked <laughs> off to episodes of The Wonder Years. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have no ideas about the sexual fantasies I've had about Celtic pride. <laughs> Daniel Stern. Uh, uh, what uh, was what was the? It wasn't Camp Nowhere. It wasn't even like at a Camp Nowhere ripoff. Bushwhack. <laughs> Oh, there, all right. Speaking of I, fucking bushwhacking, <laughs> Daniel oh, Stern. Oh. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, ready for a, a bomb, bomb drop? Hit me. I'd like to ask you guys this question, as this is a game uh, that I play with my friend, uh, friend of mine a lot. I asked this on my Facebook a while back, and the, you, we mentioned bushwhacked and Celtic pride, and it r- reminds me of this. <laughs> what are some really awful movies you saw in theaters when you were a kid oh uh i mean i'm i saw a lot of them i would say the first bad movie that i ever walked out recognizing it was bad and of course this just makes me sound very either very young or very naive where i walked out and i was like i hated that was uh orange county do you remember that? Which is surprising because I know a lot of people have liked that movie. Actually. It's it's a shitty. Yeah. It's a piece of shit. Um, uh, it's I saw too bad because it was the movie that uh, that came after uh, fucking Zero Effect, and it was the same director. I saw Ace oh, Ventura. Great. Oh no! I guess I guess my uh, I guess I guess my sort of claim to fame is that everyone else went to go see Babe. Uh, and <laughs> everyone else I know went to go see Babe, and uh, my parents took me to go see Gordy. 
<laughs> so and and I was like literally young enough where I was arguing with people, being like, "Babe, with the talking animals, that's so stupid." Gordy was awesome. <laughs> Wait, you fought Gordy? Was <laughs> I fought? I fought for Gordy. I was a noble warrior in the army of Gordy. <laughs> You should defend that at any like movie. Sc- you know, you know how Columbia College has their cinema slapdown. I want to see you defend Gordy. Listen, I know Pig in the City's all dark and weird, but in Gordy, he went to Hollywood, and there was a scene where he was wearing sunglasses. sunglasses. <laughs> okay, you I, know I can see why you like Leviathan because fucking George P. Cosmatos directed it. What did he direct? Cobra Baby, oh, which was the first R-rated movie I saw in the theater. What's the what? What's the first bad movie? Like first movie Wait, you ever walked out? I'm sorry, you say Cobra. You saw in theaters, Jim? I did. I'm that young, apparently. No, I mean I was seven years old, and my mom knew I loved Rambo and Rocky, and, and was... also she just did was a horrible parent. Yes, Were let's you be honest. Prepared <laughs> for Cobra? I was not prepared. I mean, as much as I loved Rambo Part 2 and my parents, I don't know, they just said, hey, you know, let him watch what he wants for the most part. Well, uh, don't, and don't diss Cobra because Cobra kicks ass. It fucking rules. I've watched it within Ooh. the past year or two and I still I love it. I got the Blu-ray. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, I, I, I love Rambo Part 2. I love Cobra. So I, I, I need to fucking – oh, he did Tombstone, like right? Yeah. What uh? What okay? Real quick, we we because we got to move on to the next section. But real quick, Jim, what was the first movie you remember seeing in theaters and hating? My mom dragged me to a double feature of Sibling Rivalry and Mister Destiny, and I remember thinking are those softcore porns. What are, what are those? Mister <laughs> Destiny is Jim Belushi and Michael Caine, and, and like Hamilton. Jim Belushi gets like oh god. Uh, it's Matthew. like it's a wonderful life kind of shit. Oh God! And I think Jim Linda Belushi, in it. Michael Caine. You saw like as soon as Jim Belushi signs on, you sign off. He pl- okay? He plays a magical bartender that gives uh, Jim Belushi a second shot of at his life, and he has a completely. <laughs> he's a millionaire, and he gets to fuck Rene Russo. Oh God! And- Sounds. Like I would like it is more prestigious to the be family acting. Man, the the that's the right. Original family it man. is exactly like the family. It is man. it. It's more prestigious to be uh, performing next to Jaws, the, the the Jaws machine from Jaws: Were the Revenge, <laughs> oh, no. than it is to be performing with Jim Belushi, Michael Caine. How could you, uh, Mike? First movie you remember seeing in theaters that you hated? Okay. Um. Oh God, damn it! This is going to be a hard question for me to answer. Um, or, or recent. I mean, we do got to. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, this probably isn't the first one, but it's a. It's it's not really that funny of a story. Uh, it's more personal, but I'm gonna say phenomenon. There you go. Mm-hmm. Because fuck phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, it's a feel good movie with a fuck you ending. I don't even remember that. I've seen it and I don't remember a thing. You, know, about you remember it. when we were talking about In Bruges and I was we were talking I think this was before we started recording. Uh we start or maybe no no it wasn't cuz we were talking about Limitless. Wait, maybe this was before. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we were talking about In Bruges and I just think it, I the the premises I uh of the joke was I think that it's just Colin Farrell saying, "Look, filming midgets. Fuck off, filming midgets" because that's the best part of the movie. 
But I think that movie's really good. Actually. I well, no, no, in Bruges is good. Fen- are you talking about Phenomenon? No. Okay, no, no. Phenomenon to me is two hours of John Travolta spinning sunglasses with his mind. That's your memory. <laughs> That's all I remember. He spins sunglasses like while he's talking, <laughs> like he's Penn and Teller or some shit. I feel like I saw that movie the same year as Powder, and I just became fucking angry for having paid money for seeing. I will I, I, give it give it to Phenomenon. Phenomenon not directed by a pedophile. That's you true. know, That's so <laughs> let's let's give credit where credits due. Speaking of not a pedophile, <laughs> is this about Jeffrey Jones? Oh no, no! I was just actually trying to make the the worst uh, segue in history to Roman speaking Polanski. Of, speaking of not pedophile, Catherine Bigelow. Oh really? Yeah. Let's talk about our director the episode Catherine Bigelow Catherine Bigelow Bigelow Catherine Bigelow Cyber me baby Bigelow Bigelow Catherine Bigelow Catherine Bigelow was born in San Cal... San... (laughs) Catherine Bigelow was born in San Carlos, California in 1951. She was the daughter of a paint factory manager and a librarian. Uh, She started off as a painter. She went to the San Francisco Art Institute uh, for painting, but then she eventually transferred into film. Uh, she entered the graduate film program at Columbia University where she studied theory and criticism and she actually earned her master's degree there. Uh, among her professors is actually Susan Sontag, which is kind of exciting. Um, her first feature film was 1982's Loveless, which featured the first uh, performance of Willem Dafoe in a feature film. Uh, but it was uh, 1987's horror vampire western Near Dark, which kind of put her on the map. Uh, after that, she did a great film, uh, cop film called Blue Steel, and then she was rolling um, from 1989, or I'm sorry, from 1989 to 1991, James, she was married to James Cameron, but even after their divorce, they continued to collaborate. They sure did. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to talk about Strange Days, but I mean, no, 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 because we're talking about Point Break, and Point Break, po- well, Point Break's as, first. Point Break, as you know, is a film in which uh, Keanu Reeves is an FBI agent who has to infiltrate a surfer group of bank robbers. And it is as silly as it sounds, but I I thought we could have a discussion real quick about um, something that this movie sort of brought up to me that I thought was interesting. And I think think Mike especially will kind of appreciate this as his sort of forte in films is B-movies. And that is this concept that this concept of uh, so bad it's good, um, which is something I hate and I think is totally bullshit. Um, and I think it is a way people condescend to movies and people will – I think The Room is good because it is fascinating. And it is the kind of fascinating movie that could only be made by someone who has no idea what they're doing. It's totally inept. Yes, of course it's inept, <laughs> but – I mean, if you've watched as many, like, bad horror movies from the 50s, like, especially the kind that Bela Lugosi started to do, or 
Like, a lot of those movies aren't funny and they're not interesting and they're poorly made. They're just bad. I think think that when people say so so bad is good, um, I don't know, that, like... It's it's where they watch a bad movie, but it's still entertaining. But I and, and my argument is, if it is still entertaining, that means it's good. That means that it accomplished something, and that is something. Wait, that, wait, oh yeah, it's not so bad. It's good. No, no, I'm not saying that. I in fact, I'm what I'm saying is so bad is good is bullshit. But I'm and I think it's a way people condescend to movies that they think they're too <laughs> they're too good to enjoy, and I think that's something maybe Mike you might appreciate because your sort of specialty is movies that most people if they watch it they'll watch it on netflix instant when they're drunk and they'll just laugh at it you know like right um, i mean i'm somebody who's who is one of the few that's willing to say that cruising is one of william friedkin's best films (laughs) well i mean all issues of taste aside and i haven't seen cruising so i can't say it one way or another though uh, later this year we will be doing a cruising episode with uh, our fa- favorite guest of ours we're doing a whole entire episode yeah, on cruising just about cruising um well it will be a, we i say cruising episode it's more a documentary where we record Tom ourselves cruising no no it's just cruising. we're just going to record ourselves going to gay bars i'm trying to get uh jim to have sex with with another with a gay man, he's not a gay it man. It will happen, but, I promise. Okay, he's shy. He's shy about having sex with someone that he is not attracted to because he is straight. So that's, that's true. <laughs> but you got to bring Mike, Michael Fassbender into the picture, and then we'll talk. <laughs> No, no, no. But I think the idea of – we got way off time. The idea of it's so bad it's good is bullshit because there are basic things. Like if you watch bad – if you put a random bad horror – like direct-to-video horror movie on, if it's inept enough, you're not going to get any enjoyment out of it because the pacing will be horrible. Or and because boring. the acting is horrible and because it's boring and because it doesn't engage you. Like – you know, taken from the other side, Brian De Palma's body double is about as silly as movies get. That's like one of the fucking silliest movies ever. But it's, it's fucking brilliant. It's it's wonderful because he is a good filmmaker mostly, <laughs> and he like and he does things. And just because something is silly or stupid, that doesn't make it a bad movie. And just because you like something that you recognize as silly and stupid, doesn't mean it's so bad it's good. And I, I think, almost feel like it's applied to movies from the past. That have garnered like a cult status, like your troll to, you know. I mean, obviously, the room is something. Look, that I, transpired I mean, I, recently. I, I agree. I, I believe in death of the author. I believe in it. Doesn't matter what they were trying to do. Whatever, whatever piece of art was produced in that, in in whatever process went through. If it is engaging in some way, like troll two is fascinating to watch because it's fascinating yeah howard the duck is fascinating to watch yeah well parts of it i haven't seen howard the duck so i can't agree or disagree with that but my point is um whether or not it is a good film and whether or not something is like the work of a bad filmmaker or good filmmaker you can't just say oh it's so bad it's good because that implies that that all bad movies are enjoyable as long as you're laughing at them and that's not the case that's, it's not the case. And I mm-hmm. want to bring this up because Point Break is a perfect example of a movie that is so fucking silly. It is a movie that makes like no – like it is like, – like everyone in describing the plot has to add the caveat of I know this sounds like the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> it's it's misconceived as a bad movie I think. Um, it, what I found uh, rewatching it is that – it's a lot more intelligent 
than I remember. It's, I would, it's got what, the in worst. what way? Because I, I would definitely disagree. What what way would you consider it intelligent? Um, the the way it's filmed. Oh, it's well, I mean, I I mean, I I guess I, I wouldn't call that intelligent. I would think it's. I mean, it's definitely really well. Catherine well, that, Bigelow yeah. is a master of directing action scenes. Um, she tension is her forte. Yes, tension, mm-hmm. and she like, and she is. She has a, such a vision. She isn't someone who just oh, I. She happens to have a good editor or whatever. Like that chase scene through all the backyards and stuff. As you know, you can say oh, that's inspired by Raising Arizona or whatever. It's it's much more tense than Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona oh, is yeah. played for comedy, and she actually like developed a camera like that could be used for that where it was much lighter than most cameras and it was used parts of a steady cam but parts mm-hmm. and like she set up a whole you know technical thing that allowed the cameraman to move the camera that fast and to follow these this furious sort of chase like she is someone with a vision of action scenes and she sees them and she executes them just brilliantly and these are and and I will agree – I mean I don't think the movie itself is intelligent because I think a lot of the themes it sort of tries to tackle it does so in kind of a boneheaded way. But it is the work of an intelligent person and I don't – Exactly. And, yes, yeah. And I will I, completely agree with that. I, I think you, the screenplays in a lot of our movies are kind of flawed and I think we have to acknowledge that you know, for the most part, even a movie like Point Break – <laughs> so I mean, th- there is some cheesy elements and some sort of heavy-handed, uh, thematic, you know, speeches of like I do this because of this and I do this because of that from you know Patrick Swayze especially, you know. But I think that the intent of uh, solid action-packed entertainment is all here and it's pretty consistent throughout. I mean, so- you can argue that. I feel that this probably applies to the majority of her work, that the, the movies that she makes tend to overstay their welcome or they could have used some trimming here I mean, and there. She, she has James Cameron syndrome. Like, <laughs> they were creative partners for a while, and you can feel James Cameron rub off on her when movies always tend to go, like, two hours and 20 minutes. I'm never minutes. really bored. I mean, I... No. I, I think that... <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is, is summed up with moments involving Keanu Reeves either overacting or underacting as he has a tendency to do. Um, Mike, I want to ask you. Um, yeah. Because what do you – how do you feel about Keanu? Because, I mean, I do think it takes a certain kind of – like anyone can say Keanu Reeves is a bad actor because he's – you know, every dramatic role he's given, he fumbles and he's and he has no – I think he's bad. He has a no range. I, I do think he's bad. But, like, I think being an action – you know, star, which he has done several of those movies, is a different kind of talent. It takes a different kind of performance. Do you think Keanu Reeves is bad in Point Break? No, I actually think his uh, his blankness works to its advantage. Oh, right. think, uh, how how so? Um, <clears throat> the fact that he's posing as a surfer is brilliant because he does seem like a surfer type. In the film, yeah, the I part. don't buy the fact that he would be a Harvard Law graduate, per se, <laughs> but at the same time, this is not the same Keanu Reeves who stumbled under Coppola's direction on Dracula. Right. No, that that's uh, an interesting. I'm sorry. That's uh, go ahead. Uh, I, I think he works very well when the material suits him. Like he's. Perfectly suited in the Matrix and in this and in Speed. Yeah, and, Speed especially, yeah, too. 
Uh, but I think that there's so many other colorful performances in the film. You have Swayze, who is hot off his biggest hit ever, Ghost, and very charismatic. You have Gary Busey at his craziest. <laughs> and John C. McGinley is the biggest douchebag yeah. law enforcer ever. John C. McGinley is just douchebag. Like, even he doesn't matter if he's playing the villain. It doesn't matter if he's playing, like, the hero, like, the, the person who's on the good side, but you want to hate him. Like, it doesn't matter if he's in Scrubs. He is just he's the, the best fucking... part of Scrubs. Yeah, it doesn't... Whether it's... Dumb, uh dumb and full of cum. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Like, I thought it was, like, it was, that part was so silly. I thought the whole point of that part was that he was pretending to be a douche, like, an asshole, and that, like, he actually had a good rapport with Keanu, because Keanu was p- playing the part, too. Mm-hmm. But at the end, but then the next scene, he was like, I hate you! Uh, and it's like, fucking Johnny Utah. Oh, my God. The fucking name. Here's here's <laughs> what I like about, here, he, here's what I like about Point Break, um, and it's silliness, and this is a extremely silly movie and I don't think that and again I don't think that means you should condescend to it and you should only say oh it's so bad it's good or whatever like this is but it's a movie that plays it straight number one which is important it's uh which a lot of modern kind of silly movies don't get modern silly movies always try to be very meta and try to wink at the audience there's a brokenness to modern stuff that I, I, I think differentiates it to the films that they're paying homage to, not like Hot Fuzz, which directly pays homage to Point Break and yeah. directly addresses Point Break. No, I mean, I, Hot Fuzz does it the right way because you can tell it's a work of passion and it never once mm-hmm. con. Like, you feel, a, I feel like a lot of modern movies, what they do is they try to go. They try not to feel like they don't want to be stuck with the reputation of so bad it's good. So what they do is they have little moments where they're looking at the audience and they go, I know, isn't this crazy? But Point Break, Point Break commits. Point Break goes, look, we are like the first thing you know about this guy, other than the fact that he was very good at shooting those targets in the opening credit sequence. Like first thing you know about this guy, his name is fucking Johnny Utah. Okay. This His is last the, name's a state. Yeah, this is the kind of movie that you've signed on for. Yeah. You know, and it's and, and it, that sets your you know expectations in a certain way when you first. That's what's great about a setup. It's you know if it works and if it stays consistent, that setup totally pays off. I I but okay. I want to talk about Keanu Reeves because I think and I think that's a sort of interesting point in that Keanu Reeves, like it almost approaches it backwards because the idea is. He is a undercover cop who is pretending to be a surfer, but Keanu Reeves feels more naturally like a surfer than he does an undercover cop. And that's and it's actually interesting I, that I didn't even think about. I here's my my main problem with Keanu Reeves is I think he's and like 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 Mike mentioned, I think there's just this blankness. And it almost feels like he is a robot who is pretending to be <laughs> like well i mean that the case in point the part where he he makes his big revelation to bodhi i am an fbi agent <laughs> yeah. Yep. like yeah like his he said half his line i am and then and then and then it was like because it had they saw the dial-up sound back in 1991 yeah, there, and then there's a shatner <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um i i mean i i think he's pretty much only good in like, uh, like uh, you know, Bill and Ted movies, and, or uh, in my own private Idaho, which we discussed, you know, recently. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and this, I mean, I have a lot of problems. Here's the problem. I think, and this is, and again, one of the reasons I bring up why you shouldn't condescend a movie, which, and in some ways me defending this film, but at the same time, I brought it up so I could make a complaint about this film that wouldn't be considered, oh, you're overthinking or whatever. Like, he he has no chemistry with Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze tries his damnedest. Patrick Swayze is, like, a very likable person and is kind of a little, like, he you can test a little edge, but he mostly just feels like a very warm-hearted like that's sort of Patrick Swayze's thing, um, and like you, you as a viewer want to like Patrick Swayze, but you like I feel like Keanu, you don't Reeves, buy Keanu Reeves. I don't buy that relationship yeah. at all. And no. do you buy his relationship with Lori Petty? No, but I mean it's an action movie. Like literally, the like action movie, especially like something like this where just everyone is just fucking high fiving and hugging and stuff. Like I feel like the only reason women exist in a movie like this is to be like, look, guys, they're not gay or anything. <laughs> Cause, yeah. cause and there, there's homoeroticism going on in oh, uh, in, yeah. in Point Break. Yeah, I mean between Utah and. Bodie between Utah and Pappas. And by the way, I think Busey gets how to connect with Keanu Reeves. That's true. Busey, here's here's the thing. Busey is a force of nature. And there are some actors who are just fucking forces of nature. And you got to put them in the right thing. You know, if you put Gary Busey in Ginger Dead Man, it's going to be nothing. But I've never seen Gary Busey as well utilized as, as he is in this movie. Totally fits in this world. Because... Pretty much he is just comic relief, which is good, but at the same time he is kind of haggard looking. He does look run down and he does and he's, and he's very entertaining. His job seriously. And and there is the sort of fact that like the only thing that can make an actor like Keanu Reeves feel at all spontaneous and natural mm-hmm. is the fact that you know that Busey is making up half the shit he says. Like Busey And you like, better get his meatball sandwiches. Right. Yeah. That whole meatball sandwich scene is totally Utah. improvised. Give it two. It, it was two. It was. Two. He, he was drunk Utah. and high and completely improvised. That. Like and that's that's the only way you can get an actor like Keanu Reeves to sort of shake out of his rigid So I do agree there, Mike. That's a that's actually a very good um point. Um, but the problem so is electric yeah, and it's, the, and this was shortly after his, uh, near fatal motorcycle accident. Oh, really? That he had, had oh, a few, right, yeah. uh, in 88 that had happened. Now I'm, mm-hmm. now I'm not a Busey historian. Did he get crazy only after the accident or was he always crazy? Um, he was always crazy, but the craziness sort of became more notorious after the accident. Like if you watch stuff from the mid eighties, like silver bullet, even Lethal Weapon, where he's very mellow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, compared to other stuff, he's he still seems like an actor. By the time you get to stuff like Predator Two, um, Point Break, and then you get into his uh, one scene cameo in The Firm and Drop Zone, <laughs> uh, he that's where he starts being the off the wall Gary Busey kind of, that we've kind of for reality him. TV. Yeah, kind of force If you, run, if you run into him in a bar. Do not say I loved you in forty-eight hours, because he will fucking start throwing beer bottles. At Is that you. true? Yeah, it's totally true. Is that something I've, that happened? No, yeah, I have. I, one of my film critic friends uh, got the uh, uh, privilege of seeing Under Siege with Gary Busey at a screening once, and Gary Busey provided a running commentary to him throughout the entire movie. Wow! And. <laughs> And he, he gave away a lot of information, and then afterwards they went for a drink at a bar, and some cute girls came up to him and go, "Hey, 
Gary Busey. Well, I didn't say that, but they just came up to him and say, we loved you in 48 hours. And he started throwing a fit and getting pissed <laughs> off. R- He's like, I want a, I want an Oscar for the Buddy Holly story. Get the hell out of here. He just went completely ape shit. <laughs> Haven't you seen Big Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so no, no, no. Here's what I want to talk about because this is ever – I mean, they're like fucking Catherine Bigelow, number one – one of the things that I found interesting about her, which I only I only looked up sort of her history, like s- towards the end of uh, going through all of her films, mm-hmm. like or the fact that she's like an ex painter, which I think I, I want to make a list of all the you know David Lynch, uh, Catherine Bigelow. There are like a handful of filmmakers who started out as painters, and I, I love to see try to find a connection between them. But also, her first film was two men fighting with these two. Uh, uh, semiotics sort of experts de- giving a running commentary about what each punch meant and what he like she is total art school kind of brat like she yeah. is and and i mean that's probably obviously most evident in loveless and it's a little evident in something like blue steel um where sort of the tone of that whole movie is very weird and dreamlike and the whole idea of symbols and about cops and killers and like that's all very rigid and interesting but like in this movie it, you almost feel her struggling because i mean all in general most of her movies are about adrenaline you know i mean i mean sure, for sure this is a point that i wanted to touch on with you guys about uh, it's a theory that i call in her films the rush right uh the rush refers to a specific need for something in the loveless it's like anarchy in near dark it's blood obviously in blue steel it's ron silver compulsingly needing to commit violent acts against people in point break it's probably in its most purest form right 100 percent pure adrenaline (laughs) uh, well you can hear it's in the dialogue and uh, it, it's weird because it foreshadows Strange Days and the Hurt Locker, where the theme continues to uh, flourish. Yeah, yeah. In point break, you also and the adrenaline's so concrete; it's not abstract in this. It's they're skydiving and they're surfing; they're doing dangerous things. They're, they're robbing, robbing banks. banks. Yeah. But here, okay, here is the thing about Point Break. Okay, number one, I want to talk about. I think I, since I don't buy the relationship between. Uh, uh, Utah and Bodhi, like that really hurts the film, especially later on when the whole thing is about their arc um, and about the way that Utah has is flirting with this idea that he isn't really an FBI agent. He is one of them. I mm-hmm. mean, let's let's ignore for a second the fact that Bodhi is just uh, I, as a friend of mine who recently posted on my just today actually posted on my Facebook about Point Break said, like, Bodhi is just, like, the typical first-semester douchebag college dropout, sort of. Like, that's his sort of philosophy. He's just like, man, you know, you don't get the spiritual aspect of the wave, you know? Like, it's about the, like he really is... Let, let's, he's pretentious. Let's forget the fact that what he's saying feels more like just a douchebag than someone who is actually profound in any way. And let's... But the fact that their relationship... I don't. I never buy because they don't have any chemistry, and I don't see that. Because but wouldn't you just be drawn to Patrick Swayze? And no, Darren? no, no. I I buy that it would happen. I'm saying I never see that switch turn in Keanu Reeves' head. Yeah, I mean, Keanu Reeves is kind of a general, generally a blank slate that sort of 
is looking for and, that. And it helped. And like, like Mike mentioned, I I do think that is sort of an interesting idea of a blank slate becoming an undercover cop, um, especially when Reeves doesn't sell it for you. But but he also has to be a dynamic enough actor to make that switch. Because the whole, I mean, the whole crux of the relationship is in that scene where he's pointing the gun at Patrick Swayze, and to me that scene just feels fucking ridiculous. Because number one, after that intense, long, like long, long, exhausting chase, mm-hmm. um, he doesn't even like shoot him in the leg. Like, what was he chasing him for? Like, uh, he doesn't have to kill him at that point. But uh, I mean, it just also you don't feel that relationship. So, and then especially at the end, the the I mean the very ending in which. It's I just like, feel like that internal conflict is assumed rather than it yeah, needs to but, be expressed. But it's a film, and if it's felt by actors, that is better than assumed. Yeah. And I and here's and this brings me to my main point. I feel like Catherine Bigelow's two sides are at odds in this movie. And this is actually something I I feel a lot in, in some in her movies. Except you know, I don't think Hurt Locker is her best movie by any any means, but I do think that is the one movie where the two sides of her, like the the art school side and the action director side, yeah, like are at most at peace with each other. Because here, sort of philosophizing a bit to why we do what we do or why we would go to war, and I I, I think that it's interesting that a, you know a, you know a female director manages to sort of capture the male psyche so interestingly for me because I feel like she deconstructs that male machismo in, especially in Point Break. Where you know th- these these guys are are robbing banks and they think they're on top of the world and they have everything figured out, but it's it's really their downfall. It's really like eating them alive. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, but okay. So she makes tense movies, like Mike she said. She definitely she, makes tense movies. Tension Very. is her, sort of her specialty, but at the same time, she's doing these long scenes in which they're surfing and everything she's filming is in slow motion and it's all just about the beauty of surfing or the it's beauty romanticized or the beauty of that yeah. skydiving which makes sense it's thematic- fetishism yeah. right right she's fetishizing it and again that makes sense thematically because that's sort of supposed to be a switch that goes off in his head but be- but the the downside of that is that this movie ends up being two and a half hours uh when it or you know something close to two and a half hours when it could have been much you know shorter and tighter and that I really don't think she explores those ideas as well as she does action. Like, I think... I, those ideas can be heavy-handed at times, especially through the dialogue and the screenplay. I mean, I can admit, like I have, that I think that there are some moments in the majority of her films where there's a, a line of dialogue that just feels, like, too cliché by this... I mean, there's even... She didn't... I mean, let's be... Let's, she did not, write, mo- the scre- she did not right. write the screenplay. Right. No, I mean, that's... And that's just it. I think I think that there needs to be either, you know, even just editing wise, there needs to be some trimming. And I think that for for some of the screenplay, there's there maybe back in 1993, hearing certain lines, you know, doesn't feel as stale as they do now. But I remember seeing Hurt Locker and hearing a couple of lines. I'm like, really? I'm surprised that at this point in time, you wouldn't think to either rewrite that or cut that out entirely because you're just spelling out the message like, of the movie. if she made an arty film that wasn't concerned about having X amount of gunfights, X amount of fist fights, X amount, you know, X amount of chase scenes or whatever, and just made the movie about Johnny Utah and his internal struggle for going to the other side, that would be fascinating. And if she made a movie that was really tight and action-packed and it was just tense and it was adrenaline, adrenaline, go, 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 
like and it was very propulsive like that that would have been really great and i think yeah what ends point break and i and i do want to emphasize i like point break i think it's a good movie i think it's i think it's a really good i movie. think especially i mean it's interesting especially after watching strange days looking back and seeing that first person shot when keanu reeves is joining them on the bank robbery mm-hmm. uh yeah yes that very so sort of extended first person and very pointedly for it's not one of those it's not like oh you find out that that was first person or it's a camera that is from his perception but it isn't necessarily his like it's very pointedly shot like it's his own eyes mm-hmm. you know like it's I a think stylistic that, device yeah i think that's great i think i think the this chase is completely influential too i think for a lot of modern action movies I oh think fast and furious i mean i practically yeah practically stole this movie that's well, true the first one does but yeah the, uh, I'm going to be honest and say that Fast and the Furious is probably one of the only franchises where the first one is the worst one. I think Fast and the Furious is all about Fast Five and hmm. Fast and Furious as much as I hate to admit this. Yeah. But I, I'm not here to talk about the joys of the uh, <laughs> Paul Walker, Tyrese gay romance that goes on. <laughs> too Fast and no, Furious. A good, no, that is, a good, that is a good point though, Jim. And that it is like it and it is influential, and I think it's well. I think the chase scene is very exciting. I think the scenes between Keanu Reeves, and, you know, and uh, oh god, why am I so Patrick Swayze? No, 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 no. Laurie Petty. No, the the, the crazy guy, James Gary Busey. <laughs> Gary Busey. Why? I'm bad with names. I want to apologize again. Bad names. Keanu Reeves, and Gary Busey. I think all those scenes are amazing, and I think Definitely. it is. It is. It may be a little over long, but it never. You're never just. But because it is a, like pretty much Keanu Reeves, other than a few scenes, like Keanu Reeves is in every scene. Mm-hmm. Like you never once are feeling like, all right, what are you doing right now, movie? Like you're with it the whole time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even when there is downtime from the action, I don't. I don't feel like it's uh, you know um, a pace a pacing issue really isn't here. Other than the fact that you could have cut this and you could have cut that, and I think it would have been all the better for it, you know, but I also don't think it's a full blown 120 minutes of nonstop action. I mean, I think speed is actually a better, a better made movie in terms of how the, the, you know, the, the way, the way that movie, the way speed just sort of effortlessly flows as an action movie with tension and action set pieces. And it doesn't seem to let up, you know, I mean, one can make the argument that that goes on too long too, but, uh, I mean, I think Speed and Point Break are prime examples of an action yeah. movie. I'm saying it's just, I feel uh, um, it's that Im- it's that sort of thing where it's caught between two worlds is where I wouldn't call it an A movie the way I would call Predator or Die Hard or Southern Comfort, like A action movies, you know? Um, Mike? It's... Uh... What I was going to say was you, you bring up speed being superior. Uh, it does have a leg up on it. Uh, I, I think it's a very tense film, much like Point. It has more tension than Point Break, I think, because Point Break's tensions come out in certain scenes. And I'm, speed, it's relentless. Yeah. Well, I mean, speed mostly takes place, I mean, maybe not exactly in real time, but it mostly takes place over the course of one day. That's and it helps to have Dennis Hopper. Yeah, and that, that's yeah, naturally going to be more tense. elevates the movie. But I think... If Point Break had been directed by some workman who was just cut and dry, like, hey, I'm, I'm here, I got ties with the studio, and we're going to make a movie, and let's have fun, it probably would have been more of a guilty pleasure. We would have been talking about it on the same level as uh, 
if looks could kill with Richard Grieco. <laughs> right. Or, or, or any, or, she elevates uh, it for sure. No, I mean, she, absolutely. And I mean, and I do want to, yeah, give, definitely give credit where credit's due. You know, she elevates it. I think Patrick Swayze does a fine job. I don't think he, I don't think his Bodie, I think my main problem with his Bodie is that he sort of becomes sort of a whining asshole. I love his Bodie. Yeah. But no, no, he, he sort of becomes like a whining asshole once uh, after they skydive and it's like, oh, I have your girlfriend. And then at the end, you're still expected to be like, oh, no, give him that one last wave. No, fuck him. He, it's he, a hypocritical move yeah. on, on the film's part. Yeah, I agree I, with that last I, scene. That is... I do get the, the part that, you know, he's he's been pursuing Bodie. I get that, but I think that I, I think tapping into the psychology of the characters, I think that the reason why he makes a big deal about letting him get one last wave is sort of like an oh, he's gonna die. Uh I suddenly the life flashes before him of the good times he had with Bodie. So mm-hmm. he lets him do that. And then, of course, it ends with that. It would sort of, I guess you would call this a, um, I don't know what the word would be, but it's much like the ending of Dirty Harry and High Noon, where he throws the badge into the, the ocean. Yeah. Yes. I, I, th- I really feel like Catherine Bigelow is somewhat consciously trying to, you know, let the audience in on the psychology of the characters in the majority of her films. Maybe not, maybe not in a way that's subtle more often than not. Yeah, no, she's definitely interested in it and it's definitely not, she doesn't make lethal, like blue steel is not lethal weapon. Blue steel is not just a mechanical process of thrills and, you know, an arc, an arcs, and everything like Blue Steel. She is that movie gets under my skin a bit. I, I have to say. I mean, I think it's more in the first half. Yes, but, but I don't know. I think I think that in you know even in something like Hurt Locker, she has moments where it's spelled out in dialogue. But I feel like you know just the, choosing to have him wander through a grocery store, and you know he can't fucking shop for a, a box of cereal. Sort of just says volumes about the character. And I like that she integrates that into most of her movies, like has a moment where we sort of get to see a character have an internal conflict or we get to know them a little bit more in a deeper way and not necessarily spell it out. But I still think in almost every one of her movies, it is spelled out. So I'm always I, I torn she, between embracing I don't think it. I only she's very talented at sort of just the nature of drama, the nature of two characters talking and sort of character like I, don't, I like that she at least tries. No, no, no. She tries, and she's interested in it, and that's what puts her above. Um, but I, I don't think she has a natural talent for you know, getting actors to interact in a way that reveals something about their characters without spelling it out. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think you have to watch Point Break with that, that mindset. I mean, I... Again, it's a different movie than The Hurt Locker, and it's, you know, you're not going to get... But it is not! It is not so bad, it's good. It is not some movie that you just fucking make fun of with your douchebag no, friends. No, I, I wouldn't say that either. I mean, I think okay. it has moments I that are maybe unintentionally funny, and that could be because like, of like, Keanu Like Reeves. Patrick Swayze throwing the dog sure. at Keanu Reeves. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. Christ, can you think of this movie when it was originally supposed to star Matthew Broderick and Charlie Sheen? I mean, that would have been a whole other movie. Was Sheen supposed to be Bodie? No, no, I think, I think both. I think both Charlie Sheen and Matthew Roderick were up for the part of Johnny Utah. Oh. And Johnny Depp. 
Yeah, well, Johnny. Now oh, Johnny wow. Depp would have been. You know, I think Johnny Depp. Maybe yeah. I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen Johnny Depp really enjoy something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would have something to say, but I'm going to end up dropping a huge bomb that I don't want to drop viewers. Right. I don't I don't get it. What? Uh, We don't want to do that to our listeners. No, we, Um, we don't want to do that. No, it's probably, Did Johnny it's Depp a... get caught masturbating in public? What? <laughs> if you hear this podcast, we're talking about the trailer will... for Dark Shadows. Maybe I don't know. We're yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. But... I don't know how I feel about that trailer. I'm torn. Maybe it'll be fun. But I will say, I can see. I can't see Matthew Broderick doing it. No, at all. no. Sheen, based on uh, based on the rookie, I could see him doing. Yeah, it. no, Sheen definitely. Yeah. I see though. Him, I, I mean, I mean, I'm sure he could. I'm sure he wouldn't do necessarily as even, you know, he wouldn't necessarily do any worse a job than Keanu Reeves. But trying to picture Charlie Sheen doing a surfer guy <laughs> impression, uh, yeah, is kind of crazy. I wouldn't have mind seeing Charlie Sheen, Emilio Estevez, and like Keith David in their own in, in a version of Point Break. That 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 would be good. <laughs> you know, like Keith David in the Gary Busey role. Fine. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much I, what I want. What I want is Bob Hope and Jack Benny. <laughs> oh. I got an even a better idea. We re, they remake Point Break as a crossover of the Wraith and Free Jack. Yeah, there you go. Oh wow, <laughs> fucking Free Jack! <laughs> I love Free Jack. Hate me all you want. Yeah, I, uh, it's been a long time. Speaking of uh, Mick Jagger performances, why don't we talk about a movie that has no Mick Jagger performances? You see, I'm fucking cracking off these segues so good. Could have made a Jim Morrison reference or something somehow. That's true. Strange Are days have. What's that? Are we talking about performance? No, um, we're gonna talk about a performance. We're gonna t- probably talk about several performances in the next yeah. movie, which is Strange, Strange days. days. Strange, Strange days. days. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wired tripped? You ready? Oh, no. oh. Oh. <laughs> this is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit, straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. If it's got something to do with the water, sooner or later it washes up on your beach. Fan mail from some flounder. Strange days. And she had a variety of scripts to take on for her next project, but the one that fell into her lap was courtesy of her ex-husband and a guy by the name of Jay Cox. And together they penned this cyberpunk action hybrid, Strange Days. Um, And it takes place mostly on New Year's Eve, 1999. And uh, people were partying like it was 1999. Except for some L.A. cops and a group of criminals, as well as a pimp slash dealer slash whatever you want to call him, maybe a therapist (laughs) of sorts, played by Rafe Fiennes, and he peddles this technology that you place on your head, and it uses, they call it the squid technology, and it's a device that jacks in directly to the cerebral cortex, allowing the user to experience every physical and emotional sensation from a person's memory. 
So, of course, this technology falls into the wrong hands of some rather corrupt individuals, and a murder mystery begins to unfold, which sends uh, Ray Fiennes on a on a quest to track down the killer with the help of her of his friend Angela Bassett. And despite some really glowing reviews at the time from 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 guys like Ebert, uh, I, I remember seeing this movie in the theater uh, opening weekend, and it was dead in the theater. I don't know if this was a result of poor marketing or nobody cared, but in the end, it was a commercial failure, uh, earning only a fraction of its production cost. But I, it's safe to say that over time, it's garnered quite the cult following, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. in, in, in hindsight. Uh, real quick, I do want to call bullshit on you calling him a psychologist. Uh, I know that you like to shove everything <laughs> into your... Men- but he mentions a, a little bit he's, when he's doing no. a sales pitch. No, he's not a fucking psychologist. He is, if anything, he is like a pimp. I would agree with that more than that. But yeah. I, I'm just it's... sort of, you know, paraphrasing his awesome speech that I happen to really love at that moment. Well, see, that awesome speech was the basis for the brilliant teaser trailer that has been embedded in my mind for years. Uh, Funny story, I first saw that teaser before, and you're going to laugh at me, I saw this in theaters, nine months. (laughs) Wow. The Hugh Grant, Julianne Moore film. And I remember thinking, like, whoa, like, even, I was like, seven, and it was like, whoa, like, this is kind of cool. And then I saw bits of it on the sci-fi channel, the edited version without Juliette Lewis's tits. Uh, but I, I, rec- I rented it after I became a huge James Cameron fanatic. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. And finally, upon revisiting it, uh, first of all, 1995 was a big year for cyberpunk and film. And all of them failed, basically. You have Strange Days, Johnny Mnemonic, Species, uh, Virtuosity. Uh, You you have a whole ton of movies that were taking advantage of these ideas that uh, guys like William Gibson and others were thinking of. And I think Strange Days did it the best. And... I think it's one of the most underrated sci-fi movies of the past 25 years. I probably wouldn't wouldn't disagree with that. I think it's in, I think extremely the underrated and under under underknown and uh and I, and I do think it does cyberpunk. I don't think any I mean, I don't think any cyberpunk movie has really captured the kind of druggy intensity that the best parts of, you know, William Gibson's Neuromancer do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it at least has the ideas of cyberpunk that a lot of cyberpunk movies like The Matrix and, uh, y- you know, um, that is that sort of it's the sort of idea that these are all black market things and these are all sort of criminal life and stuff like that. I like yeah. and the I do like fruit, as he calls it. And I, and I do like I mean, I like that James Cameron was sort of forethinking enough to be like, all right, four years in the future, let's not fucking go crazy with the uh art design <laughs> let's <laughs> so i i do and i and that and that ends up helping it a lot because I, I do think a lot of grounds sort of sci-fi more. movies they try they try they they can't resist the speculative art design and stuff and art direction and then in the end it ends up just looking silly and i think that movie has sort of a rawness and uh a realness to it especially considering that so much of it resolves revolves around a Rodney King style. It's, yeah. That's really it's interesting. It's interesting because Strange Days it, it, it's it's sort of equal part 
Blade Runner and then part Do the Right Thing and then part Altered States. It's and and so yet weird. it's all and yet it's all like sort of strained through noir, like more than yeah. anything. It's it's yeah. just as Cameron predicted in 1984 with the Terminator. It literally is techno art. <laughs> that's a very interesting. That's a good mm-hmm. point. I like that. Um, I will admit that the first time I saw this movie, I was pretty, pretty ecstatic walking out of the theater because I thought, "Wow, this is this is kind of like something I have not seen before." I mean, <laughs> I think I might have seen the Lawnmower Man a year or two before, but you know, <laughs> that, 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 that's yeah, that doesn't quite measure up. To something like this, mainly because of the ideas that it sort of inspires at the time when we were, I, I believe that, you know, obviously the technology of mini discs were um, coming into fruition. I mean, not, forget mini discs, fucking internet and yeah. fucking, uh, you know, just sort of global ideas and like, what is the internet uh, if not a way for people across the globe to experience the exact same thing? Like that, you know, that's... Yeah. I, but I, I mean, essentially, Lenny is watching porn right. when he's watching the, the sex video. And it's uh, it, there's also another interesting bit of technology. The, uh, the phone that he has in his apartment has text-to-speech technology. Hmm. It literally, right. the, pe- the voicemails that he gets, it's Google the Voice. calls that he gets, spell out everything that the person's saying. It is Google, and that that might be the one part. uh, Ironically, it's not some future-looking car or some like laser gun. Like the one Mm -hmm. part where James Cameron predicted a little too far ahead was the speech to was the speech to text because if you if you use Google Voice nowadays, it just fucking mangles everything. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's hilarious. I'm surprised um, this technology doesn't actually exist. I mean, not not to say that we would all, you know, (laughs) indulge in it, but. Well, see, it doesn't exist because Mini Disc was one of the many uh, ways that Sony fucked up. Uh, <laughs> right, absolutely. Betamax, Mini Disc. Uh, finally, they struck gold with Blu-ray. Yeah, thank God. Um, no, and no, the, this is a really interesting movie. I think it's one of the few movies where Ray Fiennes doesn't bore me. Um, I, I think he's sort of. I mean, I don't. I don't think he's great in it, but I do think he's go- very good in it. Um, he sells he's that in a scene. role that Andy Garcia was originally intended for. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of experience with Andy Garcia when he's not being menacing, but um, I can sort of see that. But I know I think he I does see him in Godfather Three mode, pulling off the role. Here's my problem with uh, Strange Days, and it's sort of my same problem with Point Break. I and- have three problems with Strange Days. Um, two of them are Juliet Lewis's tits. What are the, what are the other, what's the other one? Oh, well, no, <laughs> no it's, uh, Juliet Lewis. Um, I feel like it, it goes on too long and I'm just not a huge fan. I mean, I know it happens in most noir movies and maybe I'm just tired of the, when the bad guy is revealed, his exposition of this is why I did this. Oh and this God! Is why I did uh, this that. this, this is... movie has one of the yeah. worst ones. It's one of the hardest ones to justify. Yeah, and it's one of the hardest. And it's and it like if you want a twist ending, the whole point is it makes the audience view events of the from the film in a different light. But if you do a twist ending that like makes no sense, there's no yeah. aha moment. It's but just it, but it ends with a really awesome death. <laughs> it does. 
It definitely does. I I, 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 I tweeted this. I, I said, there's, I will never, ever, like, this is my promise to you. This is, this is a commitment. This is a fucking covenant I'm making with you. I will never not recommend a movie in which riot cops get beat up, like, get, get the shit kicked out of them by, by, by mo- angry mobs. I think the murder mystery in and of itself is kind of conventional, but the ideas are so awesome. And it's, you know, it has, like, some satirical elements and I like the you know the audiovisual component of it, and just I mean the opening, the opening it's fucking robbery that's all in first person, all one tracking oh, yeah. shot, one take, unreal, it's, unreal. It's fantastic. Um, here is my main problem with this film, and this is the same sort of problem I had. It is again Catherine Bigelow caught between the fact that she is an excellent action director and she makes these tense scenes and tense moments, and the fact that she is sort of an art art school kind of a girl who wants to do these who wants to explore these ideas and you know in the case of point break i just i said i you know i i think she should have just stuck with making the film tighter and more exciting you know and not have wasted so time but i think in this film the ideas that are presented are so fucking compelling and they're only used functionally like the ideas of living other people's lives through are only like functions of the plot. They're never really, and I mean, this. I guess this is a good time to any get into this. This movie has the single most unique, fucked up, and intriguing rape scene in the history of film. Oh my god! Agree. I would yeah. agree. Yeah, it's it's intense, and it's it just the. The, the strangeness of the concept of the squid technology. It is, yeah. it is a triple, triple, I repeat, triple point of view sequence. And if, mm-hmm. and if Catherine Bigelow had had the balls not to cut to Ray Fiennes going, oh God, it's so horrible. Like if she just allowed the audience to be uncomfortable without cutting to him in the backseat, like that would be literally one of the greatest scenes in film history. Well, because see, I think that was... It might have been a test audience thing. Yeah, no, have. that totally feels yeah, like it yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if they did it, like, I could see her having the guts to do with the Palma-esque one shot yeah. of mm-hmm. him sneaking okay, in. Okay, because here's what it, it does. Um, and look, the, impl- the, the problem with any rape scene in a movie is, uh, you know, audiences know that it is a fictional film, so audiences will never like experience the fact that it is that will like there will always be a distancing effect and i think uh i think i think soderbergh once said that uh i fucking <laughs> by the way by, by the way i hate fucking like say calling people by their last names in the in the sentence i believe so and so once said it feels like the most pretentious bullshit anyway but anyway i actually have something similar to that but uh, but um, no no okay Steven Soderbergh said that, like, as soon as you see nudity, this was in the uh, commentary for um, Out of Sight, because the sex scene between Clooney and Jay Lo- and uh, Jennifer Lopez, there's no you know nudity. And he was talking about like, as soon as you see nudity, all of a sudden the movie becomes a documentary. Like, as soon as someone huh. sees, like, as soon as you see Juliette Lewis naked, you could still be watching the scene and sort of feeling the emotion, but part of your brain is thinking this is actress juliet lewis naked this is what she actress juliet so in in a rape scene there is always part of some like there's always part of the audience that's going 
yes, this woman is pretending to be brutalized of a horrible, violent crime, but it is also, this is what this actress looks like naked and she's not actually being brutal. Like, but that movie, number one, point of view is the easiest way to get an audience to, you know, to immediately, who do you identify with? Well, it's a, the, there's, the camera is not objective at all. The camera yep. is completely subjective. You Just identify like with the person. The and, opening of Halloween. Right. Right. He's starting by breaking and entering. That's not so horrible that the audience is repulsed by it. Yeah, he says a little It's a build. It's action. a slow build. Okay, but at the same time, you're thinking this is what Ray Fiennes is seeing. So you're in his perspective, too. Then, after the fucking brutal tasering of this woman and being tied up, and it's fucking horrible, but at the same time, it's still, oh, this is an actress, you know, naked. Then he puts the... The, the, squid. the squid on her yeah. and all of a sudden you are forced to emphasize with her because you are seeing what she is seeing and it's and it forces you in such an interesting like because it's such an right. interesting concept it forces you to emphasize with to switch from the attacker to the yeah. victim like it is like the the fucking like levels that that scene works on is brilliant and i was like oh shit the movie is going from really, really good cyberpunk sort of thriller, noir thriller, to insanely great um, sort of exploration of what it means to be a voyeur and what it means yeah. to view films and what it means to experience things. Um, and that's the what you said, the art school yeah. ideology. Absolutely, because that's, that's – I mean it is a tense scene and it is sort of brutal, but that's not a scene where she's drawing upon her – editing yeah. and shot ability that's a scene where she conceptualized and you something have to give her credit for for her audacity and pulling that off and pulling it off so well yeah but i also think you know even though it wasn't necessarily you know embraced by white audiences i think i don't know if people had read reviews or something but there was a, a small faction of critics who really were shocked by not necessarily that but the they felt it was a misogynistic movie. I've heard on another podcast well, that you how, know, all how the so? women, all, all the women were, you know, treated in in ways that you know, and obviously <clears throat> we we can they might just point to that particular scene and and feel that. way. I feel that the fact Which that is an it, extremely bizarre thing. Yes, because care. I feel it's the opposite. I feel like it is opposite of misogynistic to make a rape scene in which the. The text of the film is you as a viewer are now going to have a shift in who you're identifying with. Yeah. And you're... it has the – and Cameron is one of the most feminist directors. Absolutely. I mean I, yeah, I, I think would... they look at it on a very surface level. But it brings up – uh, I'm sorry. It brings up a point that I wanted to make about Strange Days, which is interesting. You have James Cameron writing the movie, Catherine Bigelow directing. And while we're discussing this as the auteur theory, I'm reading – uh, Joe Esterhaas's book, Hollywood Animal, it's his memoir. Mm. And there's an interesting point that he says, uh, film critics and film writers insisted that the director was the auteur of the film, even if the director didn't write the film, that the, that a film by Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese, not Melissa Matheson and Paul Schrader, meaning that people tend to take the credit away from the writer. And here you have two directors, basically, working at force on the, on the creative side of the film. And I do want to say that strange days is a strong proponent of both the director and the writer being the auteur simultaneously. 
Yeah, I mean, auteur theory, uh, and I don't, I mean, I haven't read the Cahier du Cinema, uh, you know, issues where auteur theory oh, was I invented. I haven't, you know, I, so, but I, just from my understanding of the auteur theory, I think it's helpful if you want to talk about a director's films as a whole, which we do on this show. But in the end, it discounts the fact that the credits at the end of a film are seven minutes long because fucking hundreds and hundreds of mm-hmm. people with all different ideas who may be directed in one direction by someone, but are still, they're all artists in their own way. I think it does discount that sort of thing, which is, um, in, which is unfortunate. I think, I think it's a useful shorthand, but in, in general, I don't agree. I, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate to almost say this, but I agree with Joe Esterhaas. <laughs> I would agree with that totally too. His book is brilliant, by the way. I, I don't doubt it. I, I think he's got a lot of interesting insight to the system and you know what what he had to you know go through in general. I th- I would but, I would find that I would find that fascinating to read. Even it's worth reading from what I've read. But um, getting back on track with Strange Days, uh, Patrick. I know I was discussing this with you earlier. Um, when I first started to know what Inception was exactly going to be about, Strange Days was the first thing I thought of. And hmm. I'm going to probably start an argument with you guys, so get your switchblades ready. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but Mike, I do really want to finish my point about the, that, oh, that, the rape I scene. Um, just real – I do want to say my main problem with Strange Days is, again, this sort of – that is – an intriguing idea and you've seen this person who uses his fucking memories as pornography and you and you've seen and the whole idea of escaping literally feeling everything someone else feels and living vicariously through other people i thought all those ideas were going to explain but at the end that rape scene was only used mechanically in the plot mechanics of this murder mystery and that to me was the hugest dropped ball and disappointment of the entire film was that you just had one of the single most like thrilling and riveting and interesting and fascinating scenes ever. And then in the end, it's just like, what, what does the film get out of it? That means there's some kind of killer who's toying with us. No, that's not all it means. Please go back to before when the movie was going to be like fucking brilliant. Um, um, so that's, and I, and I feel that the movie keeps going back and forth between ideas and the fact that, oh, we're at the junkyard and we've got to investigate the car, but because it's been 30 minutes since our last action scene, we have to have a shootout, you know, mm-hmm. like... But I have to bring up still the fact I promise that, we're going to get to Inception, yeah, Mike. No, I, I, I just feel no, like... No, no, I'm not in any rush. Yeah, um, I just feel like there are there is people, and I don't agree, who might look at the very surface level of the ideas sort of being washed away... In, you know, by the violence in the in the movie, like some people feel, you know, when I've read other reviews too, they, you know, they say, oh well, th- you know, there's this great intention and amazing setup with these ideas, but she gets so, you know, caught up in the action movie elements or mesmerized by the violence that she's also condemning at the same time, that for some people this movie sort of contradicts itself or it sort of gets you know, bogged down in a way. And I, I don't know, I don't agree with that. I don't agree that this is a bad movie. I don't agree that this is something that, you know, I mean, I, I do agree with Patrick to some extent with what he's saying about the rape scene and what it serves. 
but I and I also won't you know recently rewatched Limitless and I feel like there are movies out there that have this incredible idea and this incredible setup and I'm so engaged I'm so with it and then it kind of goes into something a little bit more cliche or at least has conventions that I'm you know I haven't I've seen in other movies now you know with someone like Bigelow behind the camera you're guaranteed a different stylistic choices behind you know kind of a conventional screenplay which is what you know makes her movies so incredible to watch but I will agree that um after like you know a second or third viewing for me I I I am a little more disappointed by where the movie decides to go especially in the last act and I think that the last 20 minutes I'm I, I felt a lot more impatient with it but I, I think that the, the tension still uh, maintains itself, especially the, the standoff where... Yeah, definitely uh, with the standoff. I will agree with that. D'Onofrio and Fickner, who are underused characters in the film. Yeah. I, um, I'm I not... Mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. Thick, Fickner more so because he's basically just like a yes man to D'Onofrio because... D'Onofrio's got the whole private pile thing going on here. Yeah, you see that face. And, you, all you think about is pile. And I, the, the the one shot of him that sticks with me is him with the blood splatter. Yes. Yeah. No, that's just, that's that's it's great. I just again once uh, you know Tom Size Tom Sizemore shows up and decides to you know uh, let um, uh, Ray Fiennes know every little detail. I kind of I I'm kind of shocked actually. At and that again point. and again the that, second that's where the scene the second scene where you think it's a rape and then all of a sudden it isn't like again the implications of that are great and seem to serve no purpose other than the fact of a reveal that she is in it the whole time like that mm-hmm. that uh that she has been in on it the whole time I should say. Yeah. And and that's I feel like that's a drop ball and, and I feel her like, name is Faith. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I I'm, I'm <laughs> I'm not a fan of Juliet Lewis at all. God, no. I don't think I don't think she's bad in this. I don't think she's as like I think she's probably she was probably best used in Cape Fear. Um Yeah. Well, I think, she got an Oscar nomination. I think well, I think she always feels like sort of petulant like and I think uh, the fucking petulant like teenage girl who's trying to fucking show her daddy up by by, you know, having this contact with the psychopath. Like I think that was a good use of Juliet Lewis in Cape Fear and in this the idea that she is this person that he is obsessed with while Angela Bassett is right there, who's amazing. And God, is she good? I mean, I, and I do think if you want, you want to talk about, you know, this movie not being misogynistic, this is a movie that shows Angela Bassett as this sort of woman who's, you know, has this unfulfilled love. And it, and it, and, you know, it takes the time to slow down the movie to, to sort of look at her as a, as a person who is, but I'm not. De- I'm not. I'm not defending people who would say that this. Movie no, no, no. Is I, I know. I'm... I just want to almost like play devil's advocate, or at least be in their shoes for a second and say, I think a person can focus on just the superficial. There's a rape scene. There's violence against a woman. I am focusing on that particular but even, thing. But even then, even then, and, this and is not actually deconstruct it the way we have. And if know? there was, and again, I think another. Uh, no opportunity for fascinating ambiguity was what if Ray Fiennes is sort of what if he was conflicted what if he was legitimately turned on by the rape 
scene in the same way that he oh, was God. turned on by the like there's That's a whole other movie well no no i'm yeah. saying i'm saying like if you're you're implicating him in you see him in a first person view having sex with juliet lewis and then you see another first person view of a rate like there's already the implication there, but because they don't want to make the audience uncomfortable, they have like a whole five minute sequence, and Ray finds like, oh god, oh no, it's just horrible, and they have to like make him throw think- up, and they have to like have him sitting in a parking lot going, that's the worst thing that ever happened, that was so horrible, and then he like looks right in the camera and goes, that was bad, we all agree that was bad, like, <laughs> yeah, but I I don't think that was intended at first. I really think that but it's that there. was like I said a, a post. But it's there. But that's it. That's I mean, it's in yeah. the movie now. Yeah. Um. And and it turn. It's weird. Like you know, the, all the things that maybe when I saw when I saw when I was younger, all, those sort of issues didn't stand out as much as they do now. And and I, I, it's it's certainly a movie that doesn't feel dated. As like I I can't imagine watching. I mean, we Patrick and I watched a couple of years ago. I think Lawnmower Man and pretty much had a hoot and a holler throughout yeah. the whole movie and i mean that was but a, this is <laughs> that was totally a movie different. that was very they're very bad but it was fascinating i mean again i'm not going to say it's so bad it's good because uh that was a movie that featured uh dragonfly sex and jeff fahey <laughs> being awesome yeah jeff like fahey him. rules he, does. he uh, does i'm not not a fan of him in this movie all right talk about inception and how it connects to strange days mike i'm sorry we um, uh no, no, no. I'll just quickly go over this because I, I don't want to uh, go throw in a wrench on this. But I think in many ways, Strange Days has the same idea as Inception, where you both have charismatic protagonists who are sort of con artists that are trying to sell this idea, this of pleasure, of, you know, intel, of thought. And my problem with Inception is that while it's a visually arresting film, it's like a, the cinematic equivalent of a chocolate bunny. It looks really good on the outside, but it's completely hollow on the inside. Some okay. And I, and no. I, 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 <laughs> I was going to say some 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 chocolate bunnies are solid all the way through, but I get what you're saying. Some chocolate bunnies have peanut butter in them. <laughs> And they're Strange good. Days is a chocolate bunny with peanut butter. Right, because it has that protein in the middle. But you're saying Inception has no protein. There's it's... no adrenaline. Right. Hmm. Doesn't have that Catherine Bigelow touch. No, I but... mean, you, you will, you will not. No, 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 no. You will not find anyone who agrees more that that Christopher Nolan's soul, like, I wouldn't say soul weakness, but one of his major weaknesses as an as a director who makes the kind of movies he chooses to make is that he's not good at filming action scenes. Um, I will agree not, with that. Just, I was confused, and I didn't like all the expo. You want to talk about expository dialogue? Yeah. Inception, the first hours. This uh, well, there, strange there days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Strange. I mean, yeah, that is my main problem with Inception: is that the whole thing is exposition, and that greatly hurts any time you rewatch it, and you already know what's going on. Um, but I'm, we've already talked about this, but, I know, um, but ex- you want to talk about good ex- exposition, strange days. I mean, again, you could say it's a, you know, and I, I say, you can say, I say, I do say that it is, you know, a little <laughs> over bloated and long, but like, at least it's exposition goes down smooth where he's explaining to this guy he wants to wear, you know, <laughs> as he has like a threesome, yeah. like that sort of thing. The, uh, I love the close up of the eye right before the first mm-hmm. person shot and this sort of like I like I love the way that you are slowly brought into Ray Fiennes' world um, uh, right 
I, I there are a few scenes that feel kind of like ridiculously dragged out. Um, like the scene where he gets the ride from Angela Bassett and she's with the client. Like yeah. that whole sequence takes like 15 minutes when all it needs to do is get him to that one club right and establish yeah, their friendship and but like again th- there's like a long extended almost like like fucking cartoon scene where she's like driving away from him and then he jumps on and then he's like whoa i don't know if i want to go and then she tries to get in the car but he keeps going like it's... and then he's posing as her assistant to right. try and and that's it's funny because i think i counted it three times in the movie he tries to pay somebody off with his wad of cash or his Rolex. Yeah, yeah, and, and then you see he has that big fucking uh, suitcase full of Rolex. I love that. This um, just occurred to me really quickly, and I, th- I almost feel like because a light bulb, is, a, a little, a little light bulb went, went off over my head, and I sort of need to confirm or deny. Um, I, I, I'm thinking that the, this movie is kind of an update a little bit without necessarily the body horror imagery ideas but i i see a little bit of videodrome that's very good in this in this movie definitely and uh, i mean like obviously james Woods video video, in fact videodrome would be a good example of a movie that if it went the full idea route and didn't and i do appreciate the action in this i think the action is good i think that i think the the pacing despite the fact the movie's a little over long i think the pacing is good i think um, I think the ending is ridiculous, but it, I mean, the fact that it is cops getting the shit kicked out of them, is the kind of ridiculous I can get behind, yes. but like, but I, I don't, I do not, here's the thing. I think it would have been better if it was a more videodrome idea centric kind of moody piece, but that's the, just a personal preference. I no, think. no, I'm not even saying it's a, but I, I think it would be objectively better film, but just cause it wouldn't be feel so divided, but I do You're probably think, right, yeah. but here's the thing about Catherine Bigelow: she does tension and she does action scenes and that sort of thing so well that, like, the fact that I'm what I'm given is what I would call a B plus movie, which is better, you know, way better than most movies that have ever been released. And you're still just like it creates this weird thing where I love all the action scenes and I love those. I just think they shouldn't go. <laughs> you know, I don't think they belong there. Yeah, it's it, it creates this weird thing where I'm complaining. About a movie, because I think it could have been an A plus instead of. I, a B I feel plus. like yeah. When I first saw this movie, it was an A movie, and I think it's just because of the ideas. And I would focus on that and not think and not be so highly aware of where the movie goes. Even though obviously I saw the same movie, I just was so almost like adrenalized yeah. by and you were how younger. original you it were was. younger too. Yeah, and it's like you become more aware of, of flaws, but I don't also think the flaws are enough to not recommend the movie. And I certainly don't think that it's taken away to the point where I would call this movie, you know, a disappointment upon rewatches. I think that just for the setup, just for the ideas, just for even, you know, just to watch a kick-ass action movie, it works. It it definitely works. And I think that's what she brings to the table throughout most of her movies. And I think... She makes really good quality B level action movies. Um, I, I do want to, if we want to move on, I kind of want to bring up Blue Steel because I know Patrick isn't quite as crazy about it. I love I, it. And I kind of do too. I think it's a really, um, I think, I think the, the, 
talk about tension building. I think it's very effective in this movie because of how unpredictable Ron Silver's character is. And oh, I Ron know- Silver's brilliant. Think, and it's th- almost a reverse fatal attraction. Because yes. It came out around the same time as that um, Bad Influence, Pacific Heights, all of these domestic, thr- unlawful entry, all these domestic thrillers. And Blue Steel is the one where the female is dominating because she's a cop and Clancy Brown is the submissive love of interest. And again, again, because, you know, we have a backstory or a side plot involving her father that adds a little bit more weight to the movie, you know, in in terms of what's motivated her to be who, who she is as a character. And I like that. Um, I love again the robbery scene in that. Oh, it's fucking amazing! Amazing, the, the whole, unmitigated. The whole and Tom Sizemore again. <laughs> that was like his. Well, uh, besides Lockup, which fuck that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was like his first big on-screen thing, and he's he's menacing as fuck in it. Um, he's just. I, I I think the whole first act of this movie is I was almost convinced I was like oh is this going to be one of my new favorite movies because I love I love Jamie Lee Curtis she's one of my favorite actresses and I love she's great I love the kind of weird dream nightmare kind yes. of tone that is happening in this film that well, that it, it feels like a horror movie to me. yeah no it does and uh and I mean especially just the opening credits and all the sort of hyper focusing on the guns and stuff like that but. Uh, I find it interesting that you that you find Ron Silver so thrilling because he's unpredictable. Because what I would say is that he is um, un um, he is uh, well, fuck. What's the word? He is un inconsistent. Inconsistent. Yes. But see, I do want to react. Provide a response to your your. Uh, I, I, well, yeah, let me Silver. let me just say, like my problem with the movie is Ron Silver. I mean, my I would say my biggest problem with the movie is that way too quickly it becomes how are we gonna get him? His lawyer won't let us touch him, which is like the most boring place a like a cop shit movie can go to. Well, and then it's, you get, it's repetitive. You get Richard Jenkins. I mean, lawyer. I love I love Richard Jenkins. I don't think he does. I don't think. His character, I don't think he's given much to do in this movie. Other I will than just, side with you in the fact that, it, that a, that's repetitive. That it's it repetitive and it happens way too early. But also, there's this idea of, okay, we're entering that kind of movie. So now we're dealing with someone who knows the ins and outs of the law and is working them to fuck with us. But at the same time, like... In one scene, he'll be working the fucking, and once in another scene, he'll just be like fucking like running into the woods. Like you remember that scene in the park when they're like about to, and then he just fucking like runs into the woods like an animal. And there's like another scene where he's like yeah. bathing in blood in the rain. Like is he is he completely off out of his fucking mind, or is he some smart kind of evil evil genius? I got an uh, like a specific analysis of his character in it, which is that see. I have a friend who I will not name because he's one of my best friends. His, and also, he's he's a serial killer. And you don't no, wanna... <laughs> he, his father worked on Wall Street, much like Ron Silver's character in the film, and had this mysterious burnout. I guess it was a nervous breakdown that, you know, he left that uh, financial realm. But I think that uh, judging by that and what I've heard, I think that there's sort of a play on the whole Gordon Gecko esque smooth oh, talker. Abso- absolutely. Burned out. 
and this is a response to that. And uh, right around the same time as Blue Steel, you had American Psycho being published, which was uh, another psycho banker. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. And that's actually one of the things I like about the movie. And actually, I would say one of the things I kind of like about movie, um, Catherine Bigelow's movies in general, is that she works in genre, in a genre that it tends to be very fascist and very kind of right wing as far as the the main theme of all these films, you know, and I'm not, I'm not condemning these films. These are often films I love, but the main theme of all these films is whoever is the toughest and can punch the hardest yeah. and shoot the, has the best shot Survival the is, fittest. is, is the, is the mightiest. And that's, and, and when you put that into a sort of context of cops and stuff, it becomes all kind of weird and right wing and she she has kind of a, a hippie liberal <laughs> sort of approach to these films where you know at the end of point break it's all about you know johnny utah throwing away his badge because in the end he you know he can find the thrill of the chase because i mean in the beginning of we didn't talk about this but at the beginning of point break like it's one of the interesting things that movie does is it converts the idea of i'm hungry and i want to do this and i want to because I'm thrilled by the idea of capturing people, and it transfers like there's nonviolent ways to get that thrill, mm-hmm. and so I mean in this, in that, in uh, and just the general sort of theme of you know near dark of siding with outsiders and stuff like that. Like or in all... strange days, you get a high from experiencing other people's lives. Well, I wouldn't call that liberal. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't you know, call getting a high from experiencing <laughs> other people's lives liberal or conservative. Well, no, I, I still I still think that that the, there are recurring themes. No, 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 no. I but I'm t- I was talking about just the fact that she's kind of hippie, and I do like the sure, fact that sure. Blue Steel approaches that sort of it finds it, it like it it requires no extra. You don't need to find out that Ron Silver like was beaten as a child or locked in a basement. The fact that he's a no. stockbroker is all you need to know for why he's a serial killer. <laughs> Fine by me. Well, no, I mean again. I, this what 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 prevents this from being an A movie again is that I feel like she succumbs to tropes and think and including like the lawyer intervention stuff. I'm like, man. I'm. I mean, nothing maybe, kills tension. Nothing stops a movie in its tracks more than well. What do we do now? Like, yeah. I Richard agree Jenkins that. plays a predecessor to Marcus Levy from The Wire in Blue Steel. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, and the and the uh, douchebag um, defense lawyer who only takes on criminal clients—that's a well, you know, worn trope. Sure, I, I I would say Marcus Levy is a good example of probably the best best one of those, uh, but characters. But I Do just you think feel that that, 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 she, that she utilizes these tropes in an interesting way. In that, you know, like she's... I think maybe she might be attempting to, but I don't think she is successfully doing it because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, all that that early reveal of him as a serial killer does is it just kills my interest in the film. And I I find her... I I think that subverts people's people's expectations because if you know the killer early on, that prevents you from having a stupid twist ending that you're not going to believe. No, and and I understand it's subversive, but you, you know, subversive isn't enough. You also have to subvert it in a way that works with the film, and I don't think it works with Blue Steel. I don't. I there's a lot. I mean, I think the final shootout in Blue Steel is great. I, as always, I think I think the robbery scene, like those two scenes alone, even if you didn't include the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis is really good, if you didn't include the fact that the tone is very interesting and dreamlike, like there's a lot this movie has going for it, and I don't think it's a bad movie. You know, if if someone asked me whether they should watch it, I would probably recommend it. But I'm just saying, uh, 
like at by the end I don't care because the movie it takes so long without any kind of momentum um and I just think that's such a poor choice. Hmm. I think the momentum's there but we can also touch on maybe one more of her movies that you guys near dark. I would figure near, it'd be near dark. Yeah. Near dark is near dark's one that I have a lot to say about because it's I don't know. I think Strange Days and that go back and forth, but it it's just here's the thing. It's first of all fuck Twilight because this is the movie that if you had Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen in this movie show up, yes. the entire character uh gallery of Twilight would be dead. And I want um, and I want to say fuck the Lost Boys too. Yeah. Um, I like the law. I love the Lost Boys. I like parts of Dark, the Lost Boys, but I, Near Dark. It came out the has, same year. It Bigelow spins the whole vampirism aspect into an allegory for drug addiction and yes, the fact that the, the blood transfusion and the way he becomes so sick when he doesn't have blood in him. It's all it, the the pieces of it are all so obvious, but they're also brilliantly put together. And uh, and Bill Paxton is completely unfiltered as Severin. Definitely, and, and you, you want to talk about tension? And bars- and also, I think, and here's here's sort of the key difference. I don't like Bill Paxton in Aliens, not because of Bill Paxton's performance, but I think his character is poorly written. Like, I think his character is a little too broy to be. Like he's a little all right, man. Oh, dude, man. Like it's a little too much of that. Like and, he's a ninja turtle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's the fucking marine ninja turtle. Where in this, he's unhinged and he has a character that he can really work with that doesn't. Yes. That doesn't and seem I silly. Lo- I love the line where he talks about starting the fire in Chicago. <laughs> I don't he, remember that he, one. He's like he tells uh, Jesse Henriksen's character. He's like, hey, remember that time we started that fire in Chicago? Which is, of course, referring to the Chicago fire. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because they've lived many lifetimes. Right. Um, I, I love that. I mean, the I mean, everyone, of course, that bar scene is in fucking incredible. It's, it's forget. A, yeah. It's I one forget. of my favorite Bigelow moments. And what's crazy is that 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 came way, way before, like, the, you know, uh, natural born killers and is way more affecting and. And like oh. startling and sad and also excite like that does the natural born killer sort of opening way better than mm-hmm. the natural what born killer. What I did not re- realize was James Lee Gross of Phantasm Two fame, who was Roach and, and Point, Break, Point yeah. Break, is the kid playing pool in the bar. Right, that he's the one Caleb who runs away. Let's get he's, away. Yeah, James Lee also of uh, Drugstore Cowboy fame and Safe. And safe and uh, Scotland, PA, which is I think one of my even favorite breakdown. He might even be in breakdown. James Legros, way to fucking pick your roles, man. I mean, I understand. Zodiac. Zodi- yeah, way fucking to fucking James. <laughs> We're changing the podcast, everybody. Yeah. It's the James Legros cast. We're just talking about James Legros. Uh, we're talking about probably. Um, was delirious? What? No, living in oblivion. Oh, oh god! Fucking living in oblivion, yeah. where he plays no, no, Bra- no. a Brad Pitt stand-in. Discussing the cinematic masterpiece, Real Men. Oh, I haven't seen that. You've never wait. You've never seen. Wait a minute, Jim. You've wait never minute, seen wait. Real Men. Real Men. Real Men. Real Have you men. seen Real Men, Jim? Is, 
I'm looking at one right now. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen real men, all right, in my room. God, I fuck it. Let me think off the top of my... Okay, go. just... John, that... It's John Ritter and Jim Belushi, and they're... John Ritter's like this, like, milk toast insurance salesman, and Jim Belushi is a badass CIA agent who fucked a girl in a shootout well before Drive Angry did that whole thing. I completely forgot. I've seen it. I'm going to have to rewatch and it there's immediately. And it's, it's Sybil Danning plays Jim Belushi's father or something. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I Yeah, I I'd, I'd probably had seen it on cable. Dur- it, written gonna, and, written and directed it. from, uh, the uh, of course, the our master artist who gave us Species and just one of the guys. <laughs> See, we, that's why once a year at least we got to have Mike Flynn on to remind me of something that I yeah. saw when I Mike, was like M- Mike Flynn is 11, the 12. best at, uh, at, at just like really obscure 80s movies that were actually like not horrible. But right. and also what, played – when are we doing a Steve DeJarnette episode? <laughs> we got to do that. Terry 2000 and Miracle Mile, and there will be nothing else to discuss. Holy shit. This guy that did Real Men, he wrote just one of the guys, which was the first time I saw tits. And Golden Child. Oh, yeah. And he did the Golden Child and Species. Okay. Dead again. And he wrote, no, he not only wrote Species, he wrote Virus, the competitor to Species. <laughs> well, wasn't that just like a clusterfuck of Species and Terminator and Leviathan and a bunch of other movies? God, I don't even think I ever saw this. I remember it got promoted to the heavens and then it kept getting delayed. I, I remember Entertainment Weekly had it in their summer 1998 uh, movie preview. And it never came out until January of 99. I remember random micro details. Like yeah, that. no kidding. No kidding, Mike. Um, is there any like final words you want to say about uh, Catherine Bigelow? And Near he, Dark. He deserved it for the Hurt Locker, even though I like Inglorious Bastards more. Yeah, no good for her. Yeah. She, the Hurt Locker, the fucking, the fact that those the, the, those bomb defusal scene, defusing scenes go on for Jeremy like, Renner. Up, up for up, those scenes go on for like upwards of fifteen minutes, and they're fucking intense and insane the yeah. whole time. I'd say and this. Fact, I'd say the sniper sequence out in the desert is one yeah. of my favorite things ever. I love that whole sequence. Listen, that's Catherine, where he finds returns. Cat, as, yeah, that's I, right. I I feel like Catherine Bigelow. She may be someone who in her films is conflicted, sort of between her and you know, and she doesn't always make the most perfectly conceived, most perfectly uh, sort of achieved a singular, you know, uh, cohesive movies. But like you talk about her fucking filmography, you know, pretty much anything other than K-19, the Widowmaker. uh, And maybe I didn't see weight of water. There's always like, I heard it's awful. uh, There's always like one or I can only imagine because she's not very good at, you know, actors and drama and stuff. But there's always like one or two scenes that are like, fucking up there with the greatest action scenes of all time. Like, yeah. she consistently does that shit. Um, and I want to see what she does with Zero Dark Thirty, the Bin Laden film, yeah. that has a great cast so far. You have um, Joel Edgerton, who is fucking awesome. I, yeah. You I'm, have uh, I, Mark Strong is going to be in it. Um, Kyle Chandler. <laughs> I, 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 feel, I mean, I feel about that movie, it is such a we're going to cash in on a recent event sort of thing that I don't 
Like, I know it's not going to be the Hurt Locker just because I know it's not going to tackle the thematically interesting territory that the Hurt Locker will. But, right. I mean, I'm very excited just to see. I mean, I'm hoping we get more of a United 93 sort yeah. of Yeah. Or what, oh, if, yeah. what if, I mean, if the whole film, like, if she does the setup where they're being briefed about the mission, like, and that whole thing is done in 10 minutes, think of if the whole mission is the entire movie and we are pretty much treated to an hour and a half to two hour Catherine Bigelow action sequence. Like you're 100% <laughs> pure Bigelow. Yeah, that's right. It's I, my boner would never drop. Yeah. An entire time. Mm-hmm. I'm just, Oh, my boner never drops for her now. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's, yeah. She's like 63. She looks, she looks amazing. Gorgeous. She's, just gorgeous. She's using the same anti-aging formula that Dick Clark kept getting from the kid on police squad. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, uh, well, we didn't don't wanna... they just eat children? I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe that was just a rumor I read in a tabloid. I'm pretty sure Catherine Bigelow just eats children, and that's how she stays fabulous. Um, we got to do our top three. That's don't right. Forget. That's right. Okay, my number, my uh, let's see, I'll, let me do my top three for Bigelow. My number one um, would probably be Strange Days. Number two would be Near Dark. And number three would be Point Break. That's exactly my list. Actually, you know what? No, I'm sorry. Number three okay, would be then. number three would be Hurt Locker. I'm going Strange Days near Dark Point Break. Um, I, th- th- it pains me because I would say Point Break would be doing I would be doing if it was favorite. Uh but if we're gonna do best, I, well, I think say, no, I think we're doing personal fa- favorite. Yeah, yeah, we're doing personal favorites. Like personal favorites. I would say Strange Days, then Near Dark, and. I'd say Near Dark and Strange Days flip-flop between each other, then uh-huh. Point Break, and then uh, Hurt Locker right on the outskirts. Sure. Yeah. Sure, definitely. Wow. The adrenaline is just kicking in mm-hmm. after talking about her movies. I'm. Thanks again, Mike, for being on the show. Is you can, Guys, uh, you, it is always a pleasure absolutely, to talk you can, to you, and I yeah. look forward to the next time that we cross paths, whenever that may be. Maybe uh, it's going to be George P. Cosmatos. Yeah. You never know. Fingers crossed. Uh, no, I'll tell you who I want to be on for. I'm going to directly tell you right now. Sure. I want to be the guest on your Paul Verhoeven episode. I know. I think oh. we already have. I, my, I, my problem, Mike, is I think we already uh, promised... Uh, the uh, we I think we already promised someone else. You could could, could <laughs> we have dueling, Could could we have a dueling war of hmm. unmitigated I, craziness? I'm possible, but I think he. I mean, I think we only do the dueling when there's disagreement. I think he likes Verhoeven. You have Look, to reenact over the top and arm yeah. wrestle. For Look, it. that's all we're gonna do. All right, we're gonna you're gonna do. A, I'd buy that for a dollar off. Is what you're gonna do, and you're both gonna. See, you know, like when you got to keep your hand on the car, and then whoever keeps their hand on the car longest wins the car. You got to see who will say, "I'd buy that for a dollar longest," and then that will that'll determine it. Um, that will be an that will be a bonus episode uh, in which we yeah. make these people scream catchphrases. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, other directors, I, I'd love. Am I? Is this being recorded anywhere? No, yeah, no, it's still recording. We can oh, talk we can about talk it about afterwards. Let's talk about it off air. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. You can read Mike Flynn's writing on the the B, the B movie column still happens on Chud, right? Uh, it still does. We're still trying to formulate a, uh, a, a comeback. But I will tell people to look up my very in-depth look at They Live as 
uh, as put through the uh, current times that we're going through. Oh, cool. It's it just look for the B movie column put on the glasses. There you go. B movie column. Just Google B movie column put on the glasses. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Patrick or Paul. You can find me at Instant Jim. Um, you, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Drew Flynn. All right. And, and you can find me on Facebook. So hit me up if you, you want to chat movies. Absolutely. Um, sure. You can email us at directorsclubpodcast.com at gmail.com. Yeah, and our website is uh, directors, <laughs> it's directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. And the website is Directors Club Podcast. Com. We have a very special episode coming up. That's going to be really interesting. We have this author who actually contacted us um, about sort of a un- unknown, underappreciated, and actually often reviled uh, 50s uh, director Coleman Francis. So. I'm not very familiar with him at all. And we'll probably just be talking about one film. Yes. Um, so it'll be a really ex- interesting episode for us. No, that's in- uh, yeah. He uh, I he actually sent us advanced copies of his book, and it's kind of fascinating. So oh, yeah? I'm really excited it, about that episode. I'll definitely give it a read. All of his movies ended up being MST3K fodder. Yeah, Correct. exactly. Yeah. But uh, are- I saw him on your list, and I had to to look him up, and I'm like, oh, oh, they'll have fun with this one. Yeah. Well, it, what's interesting? What's interesting is there are other s- schools a lot, and this is actually what this this book is about. There are schools that like that Coleman Francis was actually being very, you know, sort of subversive and li- I mean we'll g- obviously get into more into it in that episode, but it's it's going to be very interesting. Probably, you know, it's probably going to be just sort of as fascinating and and eye-opening as our Tyler Perry episode. So, stay and tuned are, for that. We're interviewing the author live too, aren't we? Right, yeah. The author um, is making a stop in Chicago, so we'll That's be great. talking to That's him. That's great. Okay. So, uh, stay tuned for that episode everybody and thanks again for for listening and uh We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Get back. Strange days. Oh, God. It's so horrible. Yeah. All right. Cool. Catherine Bigelow was born in San Carlos, California in – I'm sorry. We're going to have to start again. 1951. That's right. She's way older than she looks. Okay. Uh, all right. Are you ready? Yes. Catherine Bigelow was born in San Carlos, California. United – fuck. Hold on. <laughs> it says United States on Wikipedia. Like, oh, California where? California in the Philippines? All right. I'm sorry. One more time, Jim, if you would please. Uh, Mike, can you say something real quick? Uh, bacon. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mike.